Jeff Ritzman, you... Jeremy Vaney. That's me. You <laughs> have found uh, a man who was, what, recently interviewed by Time Magazine, who for uh, some reason has decided to come on our show. It, well, he's been interviewed uh, a lot of places. He, he's probably tongue-tired from all of the interviews that he's had to do lately, and the speaking engagements at bookstores and all around. Yeah, Mr. Don Latin. Don Latin, go on. Yes, this is someone that, that people on our forum were saying, we really want this guy on the show, and it just so happened that you, uh, I guess, had seen the same YouTube video that they all had on yes. you know, promoting his book and were on it. Uh, yeah, we were on it. I was on it pretty quick for that. Uh, I came across it on boingboing.net. Uh, it was a trailer for the Harvard Psychedelic Club, which chronicles Timothy Leary, Ram Dass, Houston Smith, and Andrew Weil. And uh, it's essentially the, the Harvard psychedelic uh, experiments that were going on. And, you know, and I have to say, you know, I, I, I got the book. Uh, it's great, but it's, it's, not, uh, it's not quite what I expected. It's, it's more along the lines of the historical sense of, you know, these four men who essentially changed the way we forever think about psychedelics and, um, and, and a whole host of other things, which we're going to get into when we talk to Don, uh, in, in the sense of how these four men kind of started the things that are still in effect today and are still influenced today. But it's more along the lines of their stories. You know, how did they discover psychedelics and then what did they do in, in, the, in the experiments and how did it all go so wrong? <laughs> Can we blame them for tie-dye? Uh, I'm not sure. Indirectly. But, uh, seeing as I wear a lot of tie-dye, I take high offense to that. <laughs> um, but it's it's a it's a damn good book and and in it and we talked to Don about this uh, we're going to talk to him about it uh, you know he kind of gives a little touch of his own experiences on LSD and other things and uh, and that's quite interesting too so it's you know essentially how these four visionaries just changed America for forever I mean this is fifty years ago and it, and the impact is still being felt today so it's it's a uh, it's a damn fine book uh, to pick up. And uh, and it's a little off the beaten path for us, but it's gonna be it's gonna be fun. If you'd like to read along while we're talking, well, not really. In fact, don't even go here until you're done listening to the show. But his website is donlatin.com. That's www. d o n l a t t i n two t's t t i n dot com. That is his website. Go there, visit, buy his stuff, uh, read his stuff, love his stuff. I just like saying the word stuff. There's something about the word stuff that's great. Stuff it. <laughs> Thanks, Jeff. If you record audio for any purpose, chances are you want it to be heard. You want to attract the largest audience possible who can hear your message. That's where we come in. We're CyberEars.com, a revolutionary internet service that will host your audio files and help you promote and track its popularity. Considering hosting a podcast to the world, we have all the automated tools to make the process as simple and easy as it can be. No technical mumbo-jumbo to work out. CyberEars.com does all the work for you. You record it, we take care of the rest. So don't delay. Go to CyberEars.com today and register for a free trial account. Upload your audio files and get heard. With CyberEars.com, it's your audio on your terms. Anywho, let's, uh, why don't we 
switch our own station here. I, I don't know. I was trying to make a drug metaphor. Uh, and <laughs> talk about last week's episode uh, with right. Carol Rainey and Dr. Tyler Cokejohn. Right. Uh, I see great things in the future for us with Dr. Cokejohn. Yeah. Yeah. Like, I'm already it's thinking, like, guy. wouldn't it be great to have him talk to David Roundtree or have him, you know, uh, <laughs> get Lilienfeld back on and, and have that four-way discussion? Yeah. I don't know. I, I feel like uh, he's going to be a, a great help in some way if he hasn't been already, which he probably has. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Well, I mean, I think if nothing else, he's going to be a helpful guide in, you know, like we were talking about, where do we go? from here with that question and, and how do we study it more effectively and peer review. I mean, you can talk about peer review, but I mean, there's got to be some kind of s- standard as to what is peer review in this? What does that mean? Um, you know, peer review doesn't necessarily mean taking uh, Bruce McAbee's work and comparing it with, uh, you know, somebody who's analyzed some bullshit case from wherever. I, I think in, in some way it's going to be, difficult to peer review this stuff when you're talking about so many people in this already do have some kind of, I don't know, bend or notion or thoughts about it. You know, where does the peer review come from? Does it come from somebody completely outside the field who doesn't care one way or the other to review the work that's done and say, yes, scientifically, this is sound. They did the right things. Um, That's probably the only way you're really going to be able to peer review anything in this field. Here's something that I wanted to to kind of just bring up and, uh, I don't know, threw a glove down of some sort, I, I suppose. Um, I think we've mentioned on message boards and whatnot that uh, Carol's article has gotten um, a lot of kudos from very, very high-level people in this field. And there's been kind of a, I don't know, an unfortunate side note to that, which is that most of them don't want their kudos or their acknowledgement to be made public. And I don't know about you, Jer, but I find that really uh, unfortunate uh, in that uh, either A, this field is more like a click than a field uh, of study, or B, that this is possibly due to some kind of notion of alienation based on uh, who you take to task for for bad work or bad, you know, tactics of research or whatever. It's unfortunate because I think if more of you guys and gals out there who wrote Carol about this and, uh, and supported her in, in saying, you know, this it's needed to be written. Um, you know, this we've, we've often thought this sort of thing, but we've, you know, not said anything. I, I think now that she has said something, I think it would kind of behoove everyone. You got you all included and this field, to kind of say, yeah, you know, this is this is what is supposed to happen. This is this is a uh, uh, valuable information that should be um, that that should be supported. Uh, you know, so I would encourage all of you to really think about. You know, again, it comes down to how much do you really care uh, about uh, what you're studying? Um, because I, I have a feeling that, and this is just my own gut feeling that. It's going to be hard to push this thing uh, forward, in meaning uh, abduction research or research into any of these experiences uh, uh, as a whole if it's not acknowledged that what's been done prior really doesn't hold the water that we all thought it did. 
And so, um, you know, it, you, you can sit by and, and give your private little high fives, or you can get out and actually start to change this, um, uh, and, and change the way this field views and studies this stuff. Because I have a feeling until some of you top shelf guys and gals do this, I don't think it's going to happen because everyone in this field, uh, or should I say the interested public in this field, kind of follows your lead on this. Uh, and so if you agree with it, why aren't you supporting it? Am I wrong, Jer? I mean... No, um, you're not wrong. Uh, I, I mean, I understand, you know, at least in terms of uh, not just not wanting to rock the boat, but the bad timing, you know, Bud's really sick and, and all that. You don't want to, like, kick a man when he's down. You know, yeah, do you think that factors yeah. into this at all? Uh, I, I figure in some sense it does, but it should be viewed as bigger than that. You know what I mean? It's It's like it shouldn't be just about that. It should be about, you know everything from the hypnosis question to, um, I, I mean, just the, the, the whole thing, you know, it, I don't think it's necessary to, well, to, that's just it. I mean, the, these are examples, you know, you know Bud and, and Dave Jacobs are examples of the overarching what's wrong problem. And the overarching what's wrong problem is the tools that we're using, um, for abduction research. And so, Right. Uh, for the upper echelons uh, of UFO research, if if you've sort of suspected all along or uh, any of that, any of those feelings that you've been telling us in private, um, yeah, I mean, it's time to, to get them out there or at least to suggest new ways. If, if you don't feel like um, stating a negative case, then give us a positive case of directions to look, new tools to use, that sort of thing. Yeah. And there's, you know, there's also been a, uh, a thought thrown out by a couple of people that, you know, all of this, like, well, we already knew this and we've been talking about this for years and blah, blah, blah. Well, you know, unfortunately nobody listened. I mean, I talked too. no one listened. Uh, and now this thing is kind of the eggshell is finally broken. And, uh, you know, while some people may have said they knew this all along, well, that's great. Well, now a lot more people know it. And so now it's time to, I mean, to say you don't care or you're past this is just, again, more of this ego inflating bullshit that nobody cares about. <laughs> I, I, I don't know. I, I can't understand that mentality to say that just doesn't register on my radar or I don't care about that because I already knew it was bullshit. You know, this is, I mean, like it or not, this whole field of study, this whole corner of this study is a big part of ufology as a whole. Now that we know this isn't a good tool, we've seen the results of what that tool can do. We've had all of these people on to talk about it from Lillenfeld up. How about being, how about us all trying to be like more proactive in, okay, now here's how we should have done this, or here's how we can approach this. And, and, uh, I don't know, just like, like so much of it to me plays into, you know, not only the belief systems that we've talked about on the show, like that's going to be the hardest thing to overcome, but also this uh, elitism that well, kind of here, here's runs the thing. through this stuff. Uh, as far as that stuff goes, I mean, the, the, the type of person who says that me too, me first sort of ego narcissist nonsense is, um, you know, if true, you certainly didn't come up with any better research techniques to replace it with. You know, like if your campaign of telling people this is wrong 
didn't work, you would think that at least uh, you'd start a campaign of thinking of new ways to to actually, I don't know, attack interview people, it, yeah. attack right. it, yeah. Um, so I don't know how useful someone like that is going to be in the in the first place because usually they don't bring new ideas to the table. That's why they have to leech off of you know your <laughs> what you're doing and say me first. You know, I I already knew all this. Um, but in the event that I am wrong and uh, any of you do have something useful to actually add, we're all ears. I don't know. I mean, the, here's where I'm I'm sort of stuck is in in trying to reformulate how to. Uh, tackle these subjects, do you reformulate with the same cabinet members uh, <laughs> who screwed up the first time? Yeah. <laughs> yeah, good point. Well, and doesn't doesn't it somewhat come down to what we've said before, which is, you know, putting your head down and just doing the work. But I think that putting your head down part, I don't think you could do. I think you can do it alone, but I think it's better if you've got someone to bounce stuff off of. So I don't know that there's going to be – I mean, I don't expect the field to just turn around tomorrow or even in a year uh, into exploring different ways or uh, trying different uh, techniques in order to either – I don't even say access memory. Forget about accessing memory. You know, what do people – what is the account? What, what goes on from direct recall uh, of an experience of some sort? And then, you know – training people in how to collect forensic samples and that sort of thing. I mean, that may be a valuable um, way to go, but I'm open. (laughs) I'm open for anyone uh, heavyweight or lightweight in this field to start throwing around some suggestions and start thinking of different ways that, uh, that, that all of this can be approached. I mean, uh, yeah, we're all ears. That's, that's, that's it. I, I would think somebody like uh, Dr. Coke John might be able to throw a pretty big hat in that ring, being a scientist, knowing how that part of it works, uh, all the protocols. And and that uh, that's probably going to be one of the more valuable people, um, at least for us. And I think that's where, you know, this show has to go. And you, and you listeners, you know, chime in on this on the message board or, or email us. I almost feel like, uh, you know, going into lockdown at this point and just saying, okay, let's all of us, all you listeners and you, you know, me and Jared, how about we all just kind of think tank this thing and, uh, and then start talking about it and then start examining cases one by one. And I, I think that could be an interesting way to go that way. It's a, well, I think we, a, we, we have to know. figure out before we even do that, what it is that we're looking at and looking for. Uh-huh. Um, I mean, do we care about if I'm abducted tomorrow, do we care? <laughs> you, you know, like, am I going to say anything different than anyone else has? Um, that's one question, I guess. Mm-hmm. Um, or are we trying to create a different connection with this phenomena in the first place? You know, I mean, do we, do, uh, do you take a multidisciplinary, you know, okay, team A, you do drugs, team B, you do magic, <laughs> team C, you know, you go, you go out, out in the field and engage this stuff. Yeah, yeah, you go out in the field. Yeah, you call them in or whatever it is. Like a you skinwalker know. ranch. Yeah. I mean, is that what we're talking about or as as far as something new? Or are we talking about finding new ways to do the same old thing, which is to interview people um, who have had this in their lives? I think the, I think the choice there is to engage it. But um, I, I don't believe that everyone's going to have the, the stomach for that. 
you know, and, and I think that, you know, even the people that don't have the stomach for that may have something useful to contribute. I, I don't know. I mean, uh, you know, can we go on field trips? Can we do stuff like that? Can we, and, and then, and then try to try. Well, to yeah. What happens when you go on a field trip to even say like the haunted lighthouse and you uh-huh. go in there with a specific and better set of questions than, am I going to pick something up on a light re- meter, you know, or whatever it is. <laughs> right. What right. happens if you go in there with the intention of, of better? Uh, or even, I, I don't know. I don't know. Just trying to find something specific and then, and then looking for it. Uh, maybe that's the way to go. Cause it, it just seems like everything is always so up in the air. It's just like, let's go willy nilly and whatever we find, we find and we'll ooh and ah over it. And ultimately it won't make any sense of anything. But if you go in there and you're like, okay, I am looking for the, uh, David Roundtree, you know, wormhole. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and if you find it, then what? Uh, have well, that bunch of stuff for you to do. Yeah, I mean that's the question. I mean, when when you see any ghost hunter group go into a haunted house, what's one of the number one things they have with them? An EMF detector, and so they've got a piece of equipment there that is measuring electromagnetic frequencies. And often these things are um, tweaked pretty hard to be very sensitive. And so, you know, could they be picking up some kind of energy in the house that is manifesting as uh, an apparition or a movement of an object or, or a sound or whatever, or are they picking up bad wiring in the wall? I mean, at this point, that's kind of, who knows? We don't know. This is what I'm talking about. It's like the very, okay, we've got high EMF reading in this one room where I walk into this one spot and if they can't find the wiring, okay, so it's something else, but that's about as far as it goes. So it's kind of, you get a step and then there's another brick wall. Okay. Well, what does that mean? How do we define that? You know, and uh, it, it just seems like any way that you would approach it, <laughs> it it's going to be another question. Um, and, and apparently, yeah, but, but maybe that's the, see, here's the riddle, right? How do you break through to the next set of good questions? Well, that is it. That is the problem. You know, if there even is a, a next set of questions, I mean, I don't know. What do you? I mean, dowsing rods. Everybody's done that, and Ouija boards, and EMF detectors. And- no, I mean, I'm even thinking in terms of like the trickster element of this, where it's uh-huh. like you, you know, can you out trick the trickster? Can you get the trickster element to to tilt? <laughs> and then you go on to round two, a round that we've never, the likes of which we've never seen before. <laughs> can you hack reality? I would say yeah. I mean, I would say yeah. But I'm sure a lot of people would disagree with that. Uh, I mean, is it even possible, you know, if the trickster element is that you go in there with all of your intentions and your equipment and your questions and nothing happens, then you go, ah, shit. And then you put down the camera and then stuff happens. I mean, uh, and it catches you off guard because that's the nature of this thing. I mean, is there a way to even curb that so that that doesn't happen to Team B who is watching Team A or something? I don't know. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah, I understand what you're saying. Well, Team Team A's cameras would then simultaneously switch off when that happens. <laughs> I think what would be interesting to me would be uh, not so much trying to out-trick the, 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 the trickster element of the stuff. I think what would be interesting is to to view firsthand, firsthand what uh, somebody like George Hansen is documenting in his book, uh, which is to go out <clears throat> and actually document what you're doing, what the circumstances are of everybody in the group. I mean, we don't, we, you watch ghost hunters and you don't see like, what's Jason doing at home? How's his relationship with his wife? Uh, you know, 
Is Grant paying his bills? Um, did he have an accident on the way to the studio this morning? This kind of thing. This is stuff we don't see. And I think it would be interesting to get a group together of maybe four people and not only do an investigation of some place that has some sort of activity of whatever kind you want, but also to actually get these people to talk about their perceptions, their, uh, their life experiences, their life experience now, what's going on now. Are you in routine? Are you out of routine? And then start playing around with the personnel, start playing around with switching one out for someone who's going through a divorce. And does that induce something like trying to actually draw it out based upon the nature of anti-structure, if you get what I'm saying. Like you're just, you're mixing up a stew that the trickster thinks smells good. You know, would that work? Mm-hmm. I think that would be fascinating to go and see if something like that actually happens. Um, and then if that does happen, can you document it? And I don't mean the typical way. Oh, we got a, a cold spot or we got uh, a funny light in the sky. I mean something documented, not just, oh, well, that could be something. I'm not quite sure. It looks strange, but no, I'm talking about something that would be like, wow, look at that. Now, what the hell? You know, that, you know, there's documentation and then there's documentation. Can you concoct a, a scenario um, that, that would be attractive to that, to that kind of element? I don't, I, don't, I don't know. I mean, you know, when Jacques was on, he was talking about, you would ask him about creating a Skinwalker Ranch. And did it work? Uh, I mean, he said they saw some anomalous lights, I think, or something like that. Like a little bit, but not much. Um, but you live at a Skinwalker Ranch. You are a Skinwalker Ranch. Why can't we just come hang out with you and set up webcams everywhere? Wouldn't that just fine. be easier? Fine. I don't care. That's fine. I don't care. Um, when's your son leaving? Does it, when does he go to college? Uh, next year. All right. Perfect. <laughs> <laughs> we'll have everyone over to the house. Uh, but I'm in a constant state of anti-structure. I mean, I don't live any kind of structured lifestyle at all besides I – have to get up and go to work. That's about as much structure as it gets for me. And even when I get to work, there's no structure. <laughs> you know, what you're doing every day is different every day. Hi, this is David Roundtree, author of Paranormal Technology, and you're listening to Paratopia. Well, Paratopia, we got a very interesting guest for you guys tonight, and this is uh, admittedly outside of our, our comfort zone. Which really isn't a comfort zone, right, Jer? We don't really have a comfort zone, but this I, is... I'm not comfortable with anything. <laughs> this is the man who has written a book called The Harvard Psychedelic Club, Mr. Don Latin. Don, thanks for uh, joining us tonight. Happy to be with you. Let me, let me just preface by saying that usually on this show we've talked a lot about psychedelic experiences and, uh, uh, and, and what they may mean, what they may point to. We've talked a lot about... Uh, uh, Terrence McKenna's work, and we've had Dennis McKenna on the show. Mm-hmm. And, um, and your book is about, and I'm just going to read the, the top line here, how Timothy Leary, Ram Dass, Houston Smith, and Andrew Weil killed the 50s and ushered in a new age for America. Quite a mouthful, huh? <laughs> yeah, but it's, uh, but it's great. Uh, and before we get started, can we just spell the rumor that there's a tab of acid on page 108 of this book? I'm sorry, say again. 
Uh, can we dispel the the rumor that there's a tab of acid on paper? Oh yeah, that that rumor has been going around, and I'm you know the books the bookstores are really bothered by that because you know if people damage the books, then they can't send them back. So I'm really don't encourage people to go chewing on the uh, corner of page 108. Please, yes. please don't do it. And I'm not, the rumor may or may not be true, but either way, I don't think you, know, you should you should you should buy the book first. Let me put it that way. I'll put it this way: if it is there, this is going to be a damn interesting show in about half an hour. <laughs> Uh, <laughs> so that rumor uh, reached you, huh? That's pretty good. Well, yeah, it's pretty wild stuff. Uh, yeah, I don't know who started that. It might have been me, but uh, yeah. <laughs> hey, sales must go on, as they say. Yeah. Uh, well, anyway, I mean, the book really takes a look at at these four central players, and uh, basically, why don't you kind of set the stage of us? I mean, it's what nineteen sixty. Yeah, it, it's a, it's actually an incredible time and place and in recent American history. It's you know at Harvard in uh, Cambridge, Massachusetts, nineteen sixty. I mean, this this is all starting to unfold. Um, uh, Leary's research with first with psilocybin called the Harvard Psilocybin Project. It's all starting to unfold in the fall of nineteen sixty, uh, the same uh, season that JFK was elected president, and yeah, there's a whole a new feeling in the air, kind of a lot of feeling of hope and optimism around JFK, a little bit like uh, we felt for a while with Barack, or a lot of people felt, uh, with Barack Obama. In both cases, it didn't last all that long, but for, <laughs> for a short period of time, there was a lot of hope and optimism. And uh, so these, these, various, these four characters, Timothy Leary, Ram Dass, whose name was Professor Richard Appert back then, uh, Houston Smith, uh, who was a uh, philosophy professor at MIT, and Andrew Weil, who was just an under- undergraduate at Harvard, they all they all came together around uh, this Harvard psilocybin project. But all kinds of other people were also in in town. Uh, I mean, Allen Ginsberg, you know, the beat poet, who always seems to pop up everywhere. You know, on the on the, uh, it's on the cusp of everything in the fifties and sixties. He was there uh, in that in fall of sixty, and Aldous Huxley who you may recall wrote The Doors of Perception uh, about six, five or six years earlier, which is really the uh, kind of the book of Genesis for the psychedelic movement of the, of, of the 60s and 70s. He just happened to be, um, do, to be doing a series of guest lectures at MIT, you know, right down the road from Harvard. And um, I just, uh, William Burroughs was around, uh, Alan Watts was around, all kinds of people were, were, were in and around Harvard, partly because uh, Leary was attracted and partly just because of something was in the air or, or in the water. Or <laughs> <laughs> Could be either. Uh, yeah, yeah. So uh, the, the book basically, uh, well, it looks like it's, it's a group biography of these four uh, gentlemen, and uh, and then goes on to look at what impact they had on the whole social, spiritual, sexual revolution of the of, of, of the 60s and 70s and beyond, and also the effect that the larger psychedelic drug culture and, and movement has had uh, on American culture, which I think is very significant and often not appreciated, and that's one of the reasons I, I wrote the book. Well, uh, and a great book it is, I have to tell you. I'm not up on my psychedelic history all that well, and I don't know how many people out there actually are, but am I correct in saying that that Timothy Leary actually was on – he was like a really prominent up-and-coming psychologist, correct? I mean, this was a guy who essentially – what book book of the year in 1958 uh, for the APA and – and was right. really well, thought, really well thought of psychologist. He was a 
one of these guys everyone was keeping their eye on. And then he goes on vacation with his family, right? Am I? Yeah, yeah. Well, Leary was an expert in person. His, his area was personality assessment and uh, he, uh, personality types, that sort of thing. And he developed uh, this uh, test, which is actually still used by some people called Valeri. Um, so yeah, you're right. He was he was uh, you know he wasn't like you know as well known as someone like B. F. Skinner who was act- who was in a totally different uh, uh, field of psychology, behaviorism. Behavioralism was he was the big star at Harvard. But Leary was an up and coming uh, up and coming psychologist. And you know what's interesting about Leary is even before he ever took any psychedelics, he was very radical in the sense that he was questioning the power relationships between researchers and their subjects or psychotherapists and their patients and just questioning that whole that whole dynamic and he continued doing that when psychedelic drugs were thrown into the mix and uh, one of the things that's interesting is he was at least as controversial because of his attitude towards that but towards how you deal with research subjects um, that, then that he was giving research subjects drugs. I mean, for instance, he gave drugs. There was the one, really the only real research project that Leary did at Harvard was the Concord Prison Project, where he gave uh, psilocybin to uh, uh, a group of prisoners at Concord Prison. Uh, and you know, there's something new about psychologists giving prisoners drugs for drug tests. I mean, they're used as human guinea pigs all the time in horrible ways. What was interesting about this is Leary and the graduate students working with him would give these drugs to the prisoners and take them with them. They would just like trip with them and talk about their uh, reactions and feelings. And the whole, you know, the whole effort was to make, to have them sort of, uh, you know, do some self-examination, do the prisoners do some self-examination and, and see if that could, you know, changed their lives when they got out of prison. So, so that was actually what was as controversial as the fact that he was giving them some drug, which people didn't really know much about at the time, psychedelic drugs. So right. yeah, it was, yeah, it was a long, long answer to your question that, yeah, Leary was an interesting cat even before he turned on. Well, who was uh, Crazy Juana? Crazy Juana was, uh, well, Leary was, this all started in the summer of 1960. Larry was actually on a three-year appointment at Harvard as a lecturer and clinical psychologist, and uh, he was down on his, on his summer vacation in Mexico uh, outside Cuernavaca, and he um, had heard about, uh, you know, uh, uh, psilocybin, mescaline, peyote, those kind of drugs, because um, there was quite a bit of, I mean, there was a big article in Life magazine written by a guy named Gordon Wasson uh, just a few years before this, a very positive cover story in Life magazine about psychedelics. And uh, so he was, he was curious, and uh, Crazy, Crazy Wana was a, a, a curandera, a, a shaman, a, a magic mushroom priestess, whatever you want to call her, who was uh, you know, in, the, in the hills outside of uh, Cuernavaca, which is kind of a resort community, and uh, a friend of uh, Leary's scored some mushrooms, and they basically had a little party. I mean, they were, you know, they were down there drinking and, you know, sitting around the pool, you know, right. on their summer vacation. I mean, Larry was a big drinker. His, his favorite drug was alcohol. Uh, so they, they were they were down there just, you know, having a good time. Larry was with, Larry's wife had died. She actually committed suicide back in the 50s, leaving him with two kids. And uh, so his kids were with him. And he was a single father at the time. Um, you know, he'd be going through some hard times with his personal life. And uh, they took these mushrooms, and uh, you know, a group of about six or seven of them, mostly you know, professors and their wives and friends out on holiday. 
and uh, had you know, his first experience with, with psychedelics, which he, which he would later call the most religious experience of his life. Hmm. And uh, you know, I, I, you know, I write some detail about his trip in, in the book. But what was interesting to him, and, as, and and to me as someone who writes about religion in America, is that he didn't expect to have a religious experience. Really, you know, I mean, he was not a religious person. I mean, none of these guys were. They, they were psychologists. They were, you know, they were secular. They were scientists, and they were having these religious experiences. So when when Leary got back to 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 Harvard in the fall, you know, start classes, he was absolutely on fire. I mean, he was convinced that psychedelic drugs were going to revolutionize psychology and, and change the world. And so he started this, what he called the uh, Harvard Psilocybin Project, later called the Harvard Psychedelic Project, um, which, you know, mainly involved just giving the drugs to, to most anyone he could find who wanted to take them, uh, mostly graduate students, um, and having them write up reports and try to figure out what's going on with, with these substances. And, and because so many people were having um, uh, spiritual experiences, that's why they brought in Houston Smith, who was an expert in religion. I mean, he was a, a religious studies professor, philosophy, philosophy professor at MIT, and, and he was also eager to try these uh, psychedelics himself because he'd never really had a full-blown mystical experience. He was an expert on it. He interviewed lots of people who had them in more conventional ways and, and written about it. So, so that was really the, the, the genesis of this. And, and so the book tells the story of how he, along with, Leary, along with Richard Alpert, who later traveled to India and become Ram Dass later in the 60s, uh, started this project, which very quickly kind of spun out of control. And, uh, well, and that's that's where the story gets good, actually. Uh, yeah, yeah. That's, that, that's, uh, that, you know, a lot of people have written about about, about Leary and Alper back at Harvard, but I think my book is really the first one that tells the whole story about what really happened with with, with Andrew Weil in particular. Yeah, uh, which was shocking to me because I I only knew Andrew Weil from PBS talking about flaxseed and lemongrass. Right, right, right. <laughs> you know, I mean, this was who Andrew Weil was to me, and this completely shattered my vision of that. But uh, but Richard Alper, uh, you know, was a, a gay man living in the '60s in the closet, as most right. of them, I figure, were at that point. And and he and Leary were essentially it was what seminary students and undergrads. Uh, you know, you mentioned the con- the convicts uh, being dosed and and all of that, and other academics uh, that right. were doing this. But then what <laughs> what kind of came out of, uh, and I think more or less the, the book flat out alludes or says this, that, uh, you know, Richard Albert being a gay man said, well, what if we dosed some younger <laughs> undergrad, you know, uh, graduate students, this kind of thing. Um, right. Well, what, what, what happened is, is the, uh, Albert and, and Leary, you know, they were actually were pretty, in the early days of this, they were pretty careful, you know, because uh, these drugs can be, you know, dangerous psychologically if you're not raised sure. for them. And um, so they had agreed to only use graduate students, not undergraduates, right. uh, as research subjects. And what happened is um, uh, Andrew Weil and uh, a dorm mate, an undergraduate dorm mate of his at Harvard, a guy named Ronnie Winston, who was the son of Harry Winston, who whose father, Harry Winston Diamond Jewelry, is a very prominent East Coast uh, family, um, wealthy family. And uh, so Ronnie and uh, Andy Weil, Ronnie Winston and Andy Weil went to see uh, Leary and and then and Albert and asked to be research subjects and was was told was, was told that uh, that sorry uh, you know we're not allowing undergraduates and 
I mean, sort of as a side story, they they actually went off on their own and found some mescaline uh, and did their own kind of undergraduate version of the research project in their dorm at Harvard. But meanwhile, um, uh, Ron Winston, who was a very handsome, you know, smart, dashing young undergraduate, uh, ran into Richard Alpert, like as you said, was a gay man living in the closet at the time in 1960, and they became friends and kind of intimate friends, and uh, and Alpert. Professor Alpert kind of became something of a mentor to Ronnie Winston and decided that, uh, well, this was his private life, not his university research, so it was okay to uh, to turn him on. And so he led some um, some uh, psilocybin sessions with, with Ronnie Winston and, um, and, and admits that he had a kind of romantic attraction to the guy. I mean... I interviewed, I interviewed everyone involved in this. I mean, Ronnie Winston, uh, uh, Albert, now Ram Dass, and Andrew Weil. And, and, you know, both Winston and, and uh, Albert said there wasn't the actual sex involved, but there was, a, at least from, from Albert's part, a romantic attraction. And that's one of the reasons that he kind of bent the rules. Right. And this happened with some other undergraduates, both men and women, with Leary and, and, uh, and, and Albert. But, uh, but, but anyway, Andrew Weil found out about this and got very jealous. Like why was his undergraduate friend being brought into the inner circle and not not Andy? Right. So he went about to expose uh, these uh, you know, violations of university procedure that were going on, and started writing articles for the Harvard Crimson, the student newspaper at Harvard. And but he couldn't find any undergraduates who would come you know, publicly say that yes, they've been given the drugs because they didn't want to get Leary and Alpert in. Uh, uh, trouble. They were, you know, either they thought it was important research, or they were having a good time, or all of the above. Uh, also, while was working as a while he was working as a journalist, he was also working as a spy for the Harvard administration, gathering evidence, which is a blatant violation of journalistic ethics, of course. Um, so he was kind of working both both sides that way. And uh, and so what happened is Andy Weil went to Ronnie Winston's father, Harry Winston, and said that if your son doesn't admit to the uh, to the Harvard president that uh, he, that Professor Albert gave him psychedelic drugs, we're going to put his name in the paper mm-hmm. in this drug scandal story, which, of course, the Winston family did not want to be involved in. And uh, so Harry Winston, the father, pressured Ronnie to to sort of spill the beans on Albert. So, we, so Ronnie Winston was called into the professor, the president of Harvard's office and asked, did Professor Albert give you psilocybin? And Ronnie Winston paused and said, uh, yes, sir, he did. And it was the most educational experience I've had at Harvard, <laughs> which, which they didn't care about. But that, 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 so that was the evidence that they used to, to fire Albert, who was you know, a tenure-track professor and not, easy, not an easy guy to fire. But they saw Leary and Albert were loose cannons, and, and they were. You know, and and there, there, was some, you know, there was some questionable activity starting to go on in terms of their being kind of fast and loose with the way they were using these drugs, I think. Uh, and is that why there was a essentially a uh, – well, you said Andrew Weil was basically a spy for you know, the, the, the Harvard elite there trying to – I mean, they obviously suspected something long before – Anything well, they, really came yeah, out it, like, it, right? it wasn't. It, it was. It was basically what was happening is this research project was quickly morphing into something else, something much bigger, and uh, you could call it a drug cult, 
Uh, you could call it a social movement. You could call it the beginning of the psychedelic 60s. I mean, it was really just spinning out of control, you know, and in a lot of ways, in wonderful ways, you know. But um, they just saw that they had to lose cannons on their hands. And, and, and although, you know, Leary and Alpert, you know, tried to fight their expulsion a, a, a bit, you know, they... What you know, they got an incredible amount of publicity on this. I mean, after uh, Andrew Andy Wilde did his Harvard Crimson story, the next day it was front page in the New York Times, Harvard drug scandal, and uh, so so uh, so Andy Wilde's story really propelled Leary and Albert onto the national stage to be the you know the the Pied Pipers of the whole psychedelic drug movement of the '60s. So they had pretty much they had all, they were quickly outgrowing. <laughs> that stage. They needed a bigger stage. Right. And so, so in a way, it all kind of worked out well for, for everyone in the end, I guess you could say. Um, Andy Weil, uh, yeah, people forget, people know Andy Weil is, you know, holistic health guru, natural foods, and, yes, exactly. and all that, but people forget that he actually started out as a, a drug writer in, in the in the early 70s, I mean, like a sympathetic drug writer. You know, he, his first book, The Natural Mind, was basically a defense of taking drugs to get high, basically saying that it's a very natural thing. I mean, it's almost like our desire for food or sex, you know, we want to get high. I mean, kids, you know, spin themselves around and get dizzy and, you know, all kinds of examples. So, uh, you know, he started out, I mean, in a way, he kind of replaced Leary and Alpert <laughs> as the go-to kind of expert on, you know, how to, you know, get high in a, you know, a safe way, but not, but, but really, uh, was questioning the whole, you know, anti-drug, you know, drug war kind of propaganda, uh, mostly propaganda that was going on at the time. So, so people forget that, that while really, you know, that's how he started. And it wasn't until the nineties that he kind of repackaged himself. He was always interested in holistic, you know, foods and alternative medicine and all that, but he kind of repackaged himself. I mean, consciously his agent, uh, his people repackaged him in the 90s uh, for a more mainstream audience because they could see that America was basically the counterculture was becoming the culture, you know, in terms of interest in like yoga and meditation and organic foods. I mean, those are like, those are, you know, you get organic produce in, in you know, your supermarket now. So, and there's yoga studios on every corner. So, I mean, in some ways, the counterculture, I mean, the, the mainstream culture caught up with the counterculture and while was like, you know, poised to be you know, uh, a leader in that movement and also a profiteer in that movement. He's made a lot of money. Uh, what was, what was Andrew Wiles, uh, demeanor with you while you were writing this book? I mean, clearly there's parts of this that doesn't, that don't exactly paint him in the best light when it comes to this. I mean, what was yeah, his yeah. He, he, he is sort of the villain in the early pages. I, I, I think he more or less redeems himself in the end of the yeah. story. I mean, he, well, he was, uh, he agreed to uh, an interview. I mean, all the way he was not, he was not enthusiastic because he, he knew that their story of what really happened with Richard Alpert and Ronnie Winston had never really come out in, in detail. Mm. And, uh, so he agreed to an interview. He only gave me initially an hour. Um, you know, I spent three days interviewing Ram Dass in, in, in Hawaii where he lives now, but I only had an hour, with why, yeah, partly I think he wanted to know what I knew, you know, uh, ah, and okay. uh, and uh, wanted to make sure I had it right. And he was basically very honest about what happened. I mean, he, you know, he he's not proud of what he did. You know, he tried to apologize over the years to Leary and and, and Albert and Leary. Leary forgave him before he died, and there's still hard feelings, as you see if you read the book. I mean, in the end, Ramdas still has some issues with, right. with 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 Andy Weil. But you know, like I say, he talked openly about it and you know I, I interviewed 
the nice thing was there was no dispute about the facts about you know what happened to these three guys. Right. Um, I mean, well, you know, corrected a few things that I had slightly wrong, and you know, but basically he confirmed the story. And anyway, he was he was cooperative. By the way, he let me he gave me a lot of pictures to use. Uh, for the book, so you know he cooperated to, to that extent. I mean, he he had no like you know editorial control or pre-publication review or anything, but but you know he 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 cooperated, uh, and, I, and I appreciate that you know, as a journalist. It makes it a lot easier. <laughs> sure, yeah. Well, I, you know what what I found to be pretty amazing. Like any time that I, I mean, I was born in 1967 for Christ's sakes. Okay, mm-hmm. so I I of course was uh, a baby by the time most of this was getting over with. I always pictured Leary in the tie dye shirt, you know, and, and the, I guess the beginnings of a ponytail and later, later years became a full ponytail and that sort of stuff. I mean, you kind of picture this old hippie guy who was, just didn't seem to fit in place with, with the rest of the visuals that you think about when you think about the sixties and, and, and the acid and the, you know, you because acid, he was acid. so much older or yeah, just cause he, you know, there was just something about that. And it, it's like, it never clicked until I started going through this book and thinking about it and then doing a little research on the net that, you know, when they left and they realized uh, when Harvard was over for them and they went out to California where this stuff was really exploding, right. um, they were still suit and tie guys. Am I right? I mean, yeah, no, that's what's that's see, people when when you when you talk about LSD, you know, people what what, what do people think of? Well, maybe they they think of you know tie dye, right? And Dead. Jefferson Airplane, The Grateful Dead, San Francisco, you know, hippies, communes, the the BN, you know, rock concerts and all that. But you have to remember that. You know, there was a lot of LSD research going on before Leary and Albert. I mean, in the 50s. I mean, I'm actually working on a book right now, which is going back another generation in this story. But, uh, you know, when Leary, Leary and, and Alpert and Houston Smith and, and all these guys at Harvard, I mean, they were still, you know, they had, you know, they were buttoned down. You know, they had you know, the thin ties. They looked like the guys on Mad Men, you know, the, that, the, <laughs> the show about advertising executives yeah. in 1960. Because yeah. that, that's, that's the era. That's the look. And there wasn't any acid rock. I mean, there really wasn't. I mean, there was maybe Elvis Presley, but there wasn't, you know, the Beatles hadn't, hadn't happened yet. Um, yeah, they were listening to Miles Davis. You know, they were listening to, like, the cool jazz of the late 50s uh, and early 60s when they were tripping. And, uh, and, on, and also, you have to remember that LSD was illegal until 1966. Yeah. So... Uh, you know, until like 64, 65, I mean, people, if they'd heard of LSD, they thought of it as this interesting new drug that, that uh, you know, may help psychologists or you know, they may find some purpose for it. I mean, later on, we found out, of course, that the CIA and the Army was doing all kinds of nefarious research with, with, with LSD, but that wasn't publicly known at the time. Um, so, you know, you have to sort of stop to understand the story, you have to kind of like forget about what you think you know about LSD and, and realize that there was a whole other era before Leary. There, there was a whole, and, and LSD and other psychedelics were looked at in a different way. Well, now that's, um, it's interesting that you talk about the, the whole military aspect of it. Um, and I'm looking, I'm just looking at some notes here that I wrote down about the book. Um, this, this whole thing, I mean, I, I'm looking at this book and I'm thinking, okay, we're, we're 50 years down the line and I, I you know, I took it to work with me uh, the other day cause I was reading it at lunch and 
somebody said, Jesus, are they still talking about Timothy Leary? <laughs> and I said, yeah, yeah. And it's, it's, you know, it's actually a really interesting story, not so much about, you know, the depth of experience or anything like that, but this is more like the, uh, I almost want to call it like the, 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 the serial soap opera of the story of these men and, and, and how they turned America on its ear. Uh, it all seemed rather accidental <laughs> to me. To, to well, or, 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 or serendipitous or whatever. Yeah. 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 <laughs> and, and, and so, you know, somebody had said to me, you know, what, and I don't think this is such a bad question, actually. It's like, well, what, what's the relevance now? I mean, the sixties are over. It's 50 years. You know, it's all this time's passed. And, and what is the relevance? The only thing that I could come up with is that due to how out of control, as you said, the Harvard experiments got, I mean, is that the reason these days that people like, you know, Rick Strassman and others have such a hard time getting permission from the government to, to do serious research on DMT, LSD, all of these? Is that why there's been such a huge right? Right. Well, we, there's kind of two huge questions there. The first one is like, what's the impact of these guys now? And then the second one is, well, well, well what one of the impacts of them now is this uh, backlash, which against serious academic, uh, scientific, government research into these government-sponsored or, or at least permitted research into these uh, substances. And yeah, I argue in the book that you, you could say that Leary's main legacy, in a sense, is a negative one. Le- Leary himself, as opposed to the other three. The federal government, Richard Nixon, well, they were very scared of Timothy Leary. I mean, he was... You know, he, he was encouraging everyone and their, you know, and their little brother to, to turn on. And, uh, I mean, Richard Nixon called him the most dangerous man in America. But th- he was a, you know, he was a professor, and so he had a certain amount of authority, uh, even after he left Harvard. And uh, uh, so there was a, you know, there was a backlash, not just against, you know, the street use of psychedelic drugs, but against, you know, legitimate research, which we're just seeing end in the last five or ten years. I mean, I, I just wrote a magazine article on the... This whole wave of, of new research that's going on using uh, drugs like ecstasy, you know, MDMA, to uh, treat uh, returning Iraqi war veterans uh, suffering from PTSD. I mean, there's all kinds of research using uh, um, LSD to treat cluster headaches, which are real b- bad form headaches, worse than migraines, and uh, using psychedelics for uh, end of life kind of issues, grieving right. issues, uh, you know, in, in, in conjunction with psychotherapy, you know. So, so there's finally, it's opening up, but it's been, it, you know, there's the, like people in, in this field call it the lull. <laughs> it was about a 40-year lull. And, you know, it's not just Timothy Leary. You know, I mean, out on the West Coast, you had Ken Kesey, you know, and the Mary Pranksters, and they were, in, in a sense, wild, doing wilder things than, than Leary and Alfred ever did. But, you know, the whole, you know, the whole social revolution of the 60s, you know, which psychedelic drugs were very much at the center of. Uh, and, uh, so there was that whole, that whole backlash, but you asked like, well, what's, what, you know, why do we care about these guys today? Well, I mean, that's why I I chose these four guys because you can see their impact in different ways. I mean, um, Ram Dass, uh, Richard Alpert, you know, goes off and to India, you know, later in the sixties and finds a, a guru and returns as a spiritual teacher named, uh, first Baba Ram Dass and then just Ram Dass. And he really was one of the most, uh, you know, influential spiritual teachers of my generation, meaning the baby boom generation. And he was, uh, you know, he was a very, uh, brilliant, articulate, you know, witty kind of self 
self-deprecatory kind of guy who was able to explain a lot of these uh, concepts and uh, these exotic Eastern concepts and um, uh, to, to a Western audience. And, and he, along with Houston Smith, I think, who, who was a scholar of world religions, I, I think they... Uh, you know, we're two people that helped us change the way we really practice religion. Uh, so many people today say they're into spirituality, not religion. And oh, what yeah. I think a lot of people mean by that is that they're into the experience of religion, like the spiritual experiences rather than the doctrine and the dogma and all that. And I think, you know, people like Houston Smith and, and, and Ron Doss are, you know, are, you know, not, not obviously not completely responsible for that, but they're a big part of that. And then like Andrew Weil, I mean, he, he says, you know, in, in my interview with him, that, you know, his psychedelic drug experiences got him, and he, was, and he went on to, you know, go to Harvard Medical School right after this. I mean, he was in Harvard Medical School from 64 to 68. And he was very, very early proponent of holistic health and alternative medicine. And, and he says his, his experiences on psychedelic drugs helped him understand the, you know, deeper connections between mind and body, mind, body, spirit. Okay. And uh, you... You you know you see that you know in mainstream medicine today. I mean, you, it's not unusual for you know someone's cardiologist to say, well, you should go meditate, you know, to reduce your stress level, and right. that meditation will have a, have an actual physical benefit. You know, it's not just some kooky thing that you know hippies do or or gurus or or you know uh, uh, Buddhists do or something. Um, and same thing with yoga. I mean, it's you know yoga is like people look at yoga like not kind of like going to the gym or something. But and and whole and organic food and like I said before, so these these are all the you know obviously it's not just the psychedelic movement that caused all this, but I think it was a it was a big part in changing the way people you know uh, look at their mind, body, and spirit. I mean the way they see the whole nature of reality. I mean people you know I mean I can't, of course people are still doing this, but you know it seemed maybe it was more so back in the 60s and 70s. I don't know if it was more so or not, but, you know, this, I've heard there were like 23 million people turned on, you know, in that time and, you know, radically changed the way they see the very nature of reality and got interested in, you know, psychic phenomenon and, right. and mysticism, meditation. And so I, I, I think there's, it's a huge impact that, you know, uh, that a lot of people don't appreciate. So. Well, I, I wanted I mean, just while we're on this kind of bend here, I wanted to ask you, uh, you know, you, you're essentially a guy who came up in this and, uh, well, I caught the tail end of it actually, but yeah. Yeah. And, and, and well, you talked about in the end of the book, your own experience with LSD, both uh, a, a good one and a bad one. Right. Um, I mean, and I want to ask you about those, uh, towards the end here, but, uh, while we're kind of in this thread, I mean, how does somebody like you who, who was there for some of this, uh, and, and experienced that, I mean, when you look at this now, and you see that a lot of people are, you know, essentially dropping mushrooms, uh, you know, and and, uh, and all of these other things in sort of a recreational way and not so much in the I want to discover more about myself or even as it, you know, is presented in some circles as, you know, like instant psychotherapy or something like that. Right. I mean. Uh, Just partying. How, yeah. Yeah. How do you how do you feel about that as, as a guy, you know, who who was, you know, even. Well, you, know, if you, you know, to tell the truth, I mean, I think. Back then, most people were just partying, <laughs> too, you know? Right. I mean, it's yeah. always been like a, or, or, or sometimes they were partying, you know? I mean, it, it, it's always been, I think, a, uh, you know, a, a smaller segment of the whole sort of, you know, psychedelic population that really get interested in it in a, either a, in a deep 
psychological or spiritual way, but a lot of people, a lot of people do. And I think actually, I think they still do. I mean, you know, I mean, the whole rave scene, there, and some of that, there was a spiritual component to some of that. It's just the whole kind of new kind of form of community that people were feeling, you know, and the empathy they were feeling and the love towards each, each, each other. I mean, I think there was a, there was a, a deeper dynamic going on there. It wasn't just, you know, jumping around to, you know. Let's go get high, yeah. <laughs> yeah, I mean, obviously that's part. And I was, you know, of course, that was part of it back then. It, it, it just depended on what kind of scene you were in. I mean, I, you know, I was going to, I was going to the University of California, Berkeley. So you know, it was like that was kind of my crowd. And you know, we, I mean, for, when I, I used to like enjoy taking it just out in nature and having kind of a nature mysticism kind of experience with it, right? And feeling you know, one with the earth and and all of that. But yeah, that's a that's a deeply spiritual feeling. And uh, um, so I actually didn't really use it, you know, sort of as a party drug. Um, right. I mean, I mean, I had other party drugs. <laughs> I mean, I mean, do you think, do you, I mean, do you think like right at this point in time, I mean, it's like, it seems like there's almost sort of a resurgence of psychedelic drugs out there as opposed to, I don't know, like the eighties. I'm not saying anybody was dropping ass in the eighties or anything like that, but I mean, mushrooms have been around for, uh, forever. I mean, at least in my life, I've always known kids in high school who were doing mushrooms or dropping acid, but it seems like in today's yeah, and there, there, are, and there are new, there are new, there are new drugs coming up. The whole, you know, the, the salvia yeah. thing, the, the oh, yeah. uh, you know, MDMA, you know, ecstasy, and there's actually a whole bunch of sort of underground designer psychedelic drugs that are out there. And there's a whole, there's a huge. Uh, I'm not maybe not huge, but there's a large. Uh, you know, young people, you know, really into these drugs in a, in a kind of a spiritual, and part of it is spiritual exploration. I mean, I, I've. You know, I actually just kind of discovered this world by writing this book. I mean, because I haven't really been into this for quite a long time in my personal life. But, you know, I've been going to these conferences, psychedelic drug conferences, and there are a lot of young people, Adam. And yeah. there's all these drugs that are, you know, that the government hasn't even heard of yet that are you can buy on the Internet and all kinds of, you know, there's all kinds of stuff out there. Yeah. Um, some of which I think is kind of dangerous and you should be careful about, by the way. But. Oh, I think it's all dangerous, but you know, <laughs> yeah, it I mean, can be. You know, it can be because uh, you also you never know what you're getting. That's that's the real that's one right. of the real dangers. Yeah, yeah. it's the box of chocolates of the mind there. But but when you're you're looking at, uh, uh, you know, things like I mean, we've got a a, a podcast that that I listen to a lot uh, uh, called Psychedelic Salon, and and that's one of my I re- refer to it on this show a lot. Uh, where you've got people like Terrence McKenna, and uh, and, and occasionally I have a, a lecture by. Uh, you know, Huxley or somebody like yeah, that. Yeah, yeah. No, I, I, I and, know Terrence. I, I interviewed Terrence a few times. Yeah. Yeah, and it's it's it, it is it, or it seems more prevalent today than say I don't know ten years ago. I think it I probably mean, is. I think it probably is. What do you? What I, do you I, mean? I think I think it's going to be coming a little above ground too. I mean, because the research yeah. is coming above ground. Um, I mean, you know, what do you I mean, make of that? This, this 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 MDA study of Iraqi war vets. I mean, that's approved by the FDA and the DEA. I mean, this is you know this is. I mean, it's just a pilot study now, but I mean, there's a whole new openness towards towards this. Partly because they have they have no idea what to do with this explosion of PTSD cases with these veterans. I mean, it's it's a real problem. These guys are coming back really messed up, and um, you know that's kind of what happens when there's uh, people don't know how to really treat something. Then they get they, they're open. They're more open towards alternative therapies and experiments like this. I mean, some of the early early LSD research was around treating alcoholics because that was such a, was and is such a difficult disease to treat. 
And uh, so it's 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 and that's also something I'm I'm kind of working on right now in this this next book. Uh, the whole because Bill Wilson, the co-founder of Alcoholics Anonymous, was actually very involved in psychedelic drugs and research in the 50s, which most people don't don't realize. Well, so there there were some people that you, I think you mentioned uh, somewhere online that I had seen. You were mentioning a lot of people uh, in the computer field being influenced by psychedelics. Um, yeah, well, there, I, I, I just mentioned a little bit in my book because um, actually a friend of mine named John Markoff, who used to work with at the San Francisco Examiner, who now is the technology, one of the technology writers for the New York Times, he wrote a book on that, just on that whole subject called What the Dormouse Said. Um, oh, nice, about, nice about title. Psychedelics, <laughs> about psychedelics, it was the old Jefferson, you know, airplane, well, right. line, line from White Rabbit, uh, about about psychedelics in Silicon Valley, in the early years of Silicon Valley, and how that influenced some people. And I, I you know, I, I get into that a little bit in, in, in the book, but um, one reason I didn't is because it's been covered so well in, in, in John's book already. But yeah, the guy who invented the, the mouse, the, the computer mouse, I mean, he says it was partly inspired by a psychedelic trip. And and Steve Jobs uh, has, has, you know, said that his experimenting with psychedelics helped him Kind of thinking about the personal computer and the whole early internet. A lot of the early internet people right. uh, came out of that. You know, Stuart Brand and, and the Well uh, in Marin County, and there's a lot. There's so there's a lot of uh, interesting, interesting overlap there. Well, you, you mentioned that you'd uh, you'd interviewed uh, Terrence uh, before a couple of times. What what was your impressions of him? <laughs> well, you know, he's he's he's, <laughs> he's he's great. I mean, he's like, I mean, it's. You never know exactly what to believe, you know, but it all, all sounds so wonderful when it comes out of his mouth because he's such a brilliant, articulate guy, and you know, it's uh, he's just he's just so much fun to listen to, and, and then to, and then to quote, um, yeah, I, I didn't I didn't spend a lot of time with him, but I, I interviewed him, had a long interview with him once at Esalen Institute at Big Sur for a story I I did for the I used to write for the San Francisco Chronicle. Well, and, you know, uh, I mean, I mean, being somebody who's who's you know done this stuff, uh, what you know, you know what Terrence basically thought is that you know some of these things that we're seeing in psychedelic visions aren't necessarily hallucinations. He wanted to redefine what hallucination meant. Right, there's a whole other all level of reality. That yeah, happening. exactly, and that yeah. you know we're being tuned like a radio by these different compounds to actually yeah. perceive things that are over. Or, I mean, do you come away from your experiences feeling like that as well? I I, I don't know. I I tend to think that it's more of it is kind of socially conditioned I and mean, what you expect to see you often will see on these although I'm, I'm really not sure you know I mean I haven't personally I haven't probably haven't gone deep enough into the you know into it myself in terms of taking these really powerful drugs uh, to really say one way or the other you know I'm, I'm kind of agnostic on it I guess I'd say I mean I'm, I try to be open-minded about it but um, I don't think there's a lot of magic. Doesn't necessarily have to be a lot of magic to it. I mean, it's it's brain chemistry, you know, we're we're, we're dealing with here. So, um, although you know, I, I I think you I think you saw this. I think that's why you contacted me. I, I posted this YouTube video. Did, yes. did you say you saw that? Is that, is yes. that how you sort of stumbled across me? Was that? Uh, yeah, actually, yeah, Boy, okay. Boy, yeah. had your had your book listed up there, and I was like, oh, this looks good. Yeah. Well, <laughs> this is this I must is. Write. <laughs> Yeah, well, that what, what I love this this video, which any, which your listeners can find on YouTube by just typing LSD research. We're on our message it, board. <laughs> yeah, it's gotten uh, seven hundred fifty thousand views. 
in two weeks. The thing wow. went viral. It's really been amazing. And uh, it's it, it's a video. It's an old fifties television show, actually, about called Focus on Sanity, where where this researcher, Dr. Sidney Cohen, at the UCLA, not UCLA, the uh, Veterans Administration Hospital in Los Angeles, where it was dosing people with LSD. And there's a and the, and the, the YouTube video is is from a. This, I found this footage of this woman who you know takes takes LSD and just talks about her experience. And and what's really interesting about it is she starts out as this like fifties housewife, you know, kind of like June Cleaver. Yeah, I was going to say exactly. And like and, and then and then uh, she had no idea what to expect. You know, I mean, she didn't know you're supposed to like get mystical or you know talk this way and you know when you take LSD and, and she just has transformed into she sounds like you know this kind of uh, hippie acid goddess acid queen talking about these mystical states she's going through and it's, it's actually very beautiful and she feels all kind of empathy and 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 love and uh you know so there so I I, I say it because there there is something you know there is something inherent in these substances it's not just social cues and what we're what we expect to feel but you know, it's, it's very complicated. I, I can't I pretend to understand it all. You know. Well, I, I can tell you. You know, in watching that, it, uh, it you're right. It is it is amazing to hear her describe her experience in the moment. Yeah. But yeah, yeah. when she starts talking about and and, I, and I, by the way, I posted that video to our our message board uh, long before because we had people actually asking for you. Uh, you know, are you going to get him on the show? Yes, we are. Oh, really? Cool. Uh, so <laughs> you're 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 well expected here. Um, you know, as I'm watching this, I, I'm kind of, I'm watching her face and I'm seeing her talk about this cobweb that is forming in the corner of the room. And that apparently goes right through her. Right. And, yeah. and, yeah. you know, it, 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 it kind of, I'm watching this and I'm thinking, wow, she's really calm and she seems very together and, 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 and speaking well and trying to articulate what, what she can't articulate. And then this thing goes through her, and you can hear the ever so slight amount of warble in her voice and utter, you know, panic of "No, wait a minute." Um, and, and I get the feeling, you know, because I've never done LSD, but um, just how quickly something like this can turn over uh, to be an inherently fearful. Uh, oh yeah, no, it, it, it can. That's one of the things I, I. That's one of the reasons I wrote that afterward at the end of the book. You know, because uh, yeah, well, Huxley, Huxley called these heaven and hell drugs. You know, mm-hmm. meaning you can uh, experience heaven, <laughs> you experience hell, and um, you know they. And if you're not psychologically ready for it, or you're in a, you know, one of, one of the contributions that Leary and Alpert made was the, the importance of set and setting. Meaning, it's really important, kind of where you are, and what the context is, and why you're doing it, and who's around you, and do you feel safe when you're doing these drugs? Um, and that really can affect the, you know, the experience. Um, that's why I don't suggest people like you know go out and walk through the streets of you know New York City, you know, on these <laughs> right. drugs. I mean, people do, but you know, I mean, good luck is all I can say. Um, <laughs> but um, uh, yeah, so uh, I forgot the question, but. Uh, <laughs> No, just in the sense of of you know how how it can turn on a dime on you that it's, it's oh yeah so, right yeah yeah no yeah. it really can and and 
and uh, yeah, so I'm that. So I wrote this afterward, which basically I just talk about, you know, some incredibly beautiful experience I had, and then you know, a, a, you know, sort of bad trip from central casting, which you know, I was a freshman in college, and and you know, I had some real psychological problems for a few months after I never really came down off the drug. Yeah, that was the question. And, That's and, what I was. You know, people used about. to talk about people used to talk about flashbacks. You know, you'd have like you. would hadn't taken LSD for weeks or months, and then you'd suddenly right. be high. And I used to think that was, you know, just drug propaganda because there was so much drug prop anti-drug propaganda out there. But no, that really can happen. I mean, it happened to me, so I, you know, um, and it's, it's frightening. And um, you know, I got over it, and and in the long term, it was I kind of think I came out saner because it was almost like I saw you know the other side of sanity. I mean, I saw huh. you know madness, and and you, when you come out of that, I think when I came out of it, I think I was you know, actually more balanced, well-adjusted person, but it was, I wouldn't recommend it, you know, for, for everyone because I mean, what, know, a, lot of, a your... lot of people, a lot of people never came back, you know, a lot, there are a lot well, of casualties. Yeah, yeah. There are sure. a lot of casualties. I mean, I, I have friends, you know, I know people who, who just basically never kind of came back, you know? Well, what was your, what was your, uh, your mindset? I mean, and, and cause the way I read your book is like, you know, you, you did this, you had, the negative experience, and I, it, it, I don't, I'm not sure how closely this relates, but uh, you know, you you just said it, it was it was madness. It was like you you never it, you didn't feel that it, it had gone away, um, right? It, it, it wasn't so much a flashback as much as that I sort of stayed kind of high, and it would flare I mean, up. Yeah. Were there visuals going on with that? Were there oh, a little bit? Yeah, no, a little bit. Really? Um, yeah, yeah. Um, no, it was it was you know like I, it, it it was very frightening and I you know promised myself I would never do psychedelic drugs again. Of course, I did six months later, but you know, <laughs> right? <laughs> but but I was always more careful after that. Well, I mean, you 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 were you were able to function. I mean, in, in normal life, pretty well, right? I mean, or was it? Well, I mean, I, I was yeah, I could sort of, but I mean, I was well. For instance, I think I think I mentioned this in in, in the afterward. I mean, I was you know I was an undergraduate at you know at Berkeley and having to you know study and all that, and I just I had difficulty concentrating. Basically, I would you know I I would read a sentence and one word would take my mind off on some tangent. You know, which you can kind of do anyway, kind of daydreaming, but it was like a really extreme form of that where I just could not read a sentence and retain it. And uh, that's not a good place to be when you're a freshman at, you know, college. Right. <laughs> so, yeah. Uh, yeah, there was that. And then there was, you know, I was just, I was a little paranoid, you know. I had this kind of weird reverse paranoia. I thought people were trying to help me <laughs> rather than trying to hurt me. Um, you know, what? Yeah, the people were okay. trying to help me rather than hurt me, yeah. Huh. And it went on for a few months, you know, and I, it, 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 you know, basically I got back, you know, to a saner state of mind. Thank God. And that but, happened in a phone booth, right? What was that about? I mean, oh well, that was just a, <laughs> I sort of I, the closest thing I got to kind of freaking out was I, I was actually I was home for the holidays. I think you know I was eighteen, nineteen years old, right? Mm-hmm. So, and um, I had a really scary hallucination, and uh, I ran out to uh, call a, uh, you know, kind of like a drug hotline, you know, to help, you know, hotline, which they had a lot more of then, I think, than they do now, because there were so many people flipping out. <laughs> like, right. Uh, and uh, so I went out, you know, and I went into this phone booth. We used to have phone booths, you know, they don't have them anymore, but they don't, they don't have pay phones anymore, but, you know, where there would right. be these kiosks where you actually, it's like a kind of accordion door and you pull it in, right, to, rather than pushing it out. Right, yeah. like a collapsible accordion thing, yeah. Yeah, so I was in, anyway, I was in this phone booth, and I called this number I didn't like 
like what I heard on the other end of the phone, and I was just trying to get out, and I was like kind of flipping out trying to get out of this phone booth like some, you know, madman. I probably look like Charles Manson on a bad hair day. Or something. <laughs> I, had, I had long, crazy black hair and a big beard then, and you know, and, and right. who knows what I look like people passing by. But but it was kind of the low point of that, you know, like you know, maybe one or two month period where I struggled with all this, and I and I actually I started laughing at myself, you know, and because I saw the expressions on people's faces walking by on the street, you know, like I was just I was. I was like, you know, five minutes from getting, you know, thrown into the loony bin, you know, but, uh, oh. so, um, but I got through it, you know, and, uh, like I say, I mean, in, in the long run, I'm kind of glad I went through it, but what was scary about it is I didn't think, it, I didn't know it was ever going to go away. You know, it did, yeah, it well, yeah, that would be a concern. Yeah. 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 No, I thought I had, you know, fried my brain and I was, you know, you know, brain damage and all that, which they used to tell you to get on LSD oh. And actually, there's very little physical damage you can do on on real LSD, pure LSD. But you know, psychologically, it can it, it can definitely do damage. Yeah. Well, but, not... but in a minority of cases, I mean, most people, you know, I, I think that was even though it happened to me, I think you know, it was uh, it, in some ways it was overblown. I mean, I, I mean, more people had many more people had positive experiences than, than negative experiences. I think. Right. Well, I mean, I, I can tell you that, uh, uh, and this is known on the show as well as, you know, we, we talked a lot about the, the psilocybin mushroom and ended up that uh, Jeremy and I actually said, well, the only way to figure it out, because there's now this, this whole thing, uh, and we deal in paranormal topics quite a lot on the show, and uh, one of the things that's come up a lot has been the, the whole alien abduction thing versus the psychedelic aspect uh the, the high strangeness they call it in paranormal circles and some people in psychedelic land to say hey you know you you, you want to see aliens i mean terrence used to say this all the time you want to see aliens you want to see flying saucers you know um take, you know, this. take this you know <laughs> yeah. take it easy just take it you know um but uh and that kind of it kind of i'm sure it was a matter of dose and all that but uh, jeremy's experience on it was was probably uh, 10 times the length of my own. But, uh, and I think Jeremy, you probably got some questions at this point, right? <laughs> yes, indeed. Um, Go ahead. <laughs> let me jump in. Um, well, just to stick with the thread of your own situation, you'd said that, uh, you preferred to do hallucinogens in nature. Uh, what, why, what was that? What was it about nature that that's better? Uh, well, I would, I, I just think there was a there was a kind of a natural symmetry and a beauty in nature, and and you kind of and it's easier to see the. Uh, for me, it was easier to see kind of the interconnectedness of everything. You know that kind of a feeling of one with everything. So it's not like animals are jumping out at you, and, and squirrels are giant Godzilla-like creatures. Oh or no, anything. no, it's very peaceful, very very peaceful feeling. I mean, you might um, you know, you might like you're you be for instance you would be laying back in a field and you basically lose, this is a very common thing on LST, you, you basically, your skin kind of melts as a boundary between you and everything else. So you kind of like would melt into the ground. So you're, you lose the sense of having a body, which can be really frightening <laughs> or can be really peaceful, depending on how you look at it, you know? And you can see yourself as kind of one with, you know, you're like kind of melting into the earth, you're one with the earth, mm-hmm. or you can, you can, you know, go, Shit, where's my body? You know, I mean, I lost my body. It was going to come back, and you can freak out about it. So, um, 
was those kind of experiences and just the beauty of nature. I mean, the beauty that's there anyway, you know, and I think once, I mean, what, what Alan Watts, you know, was a Buddhist uh, scholar and teacher in the 60s and 70s, you know, people asked him, should we, once you have like a, you know, a, sort of an enlightening experience on LSD, should you keep taking it, right? And, and his thing, his, his line was, uh, once you get the message, hang up the phone. Right. You know, you, you sort of, you, you take these drugs, you know, maybe one or two times, and you you see, you experience this level of reality, which uh, is there. I mean, it really is there, but you just normally don't, you just can't see it. And so it just makes it a little easier to see it next time. So, you, so I, you know, I think I have a deeper appreciation for for nature and kind of the, the symmetry and interconnectedness of, 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 you know, Mother Earth than I did before I took psychedelics so that was like for my case i think a positive long-term benefit and i don't you know i don't have the same intensity of it obviously if i go out for a walk in the woods but i but you know you sort of learn to kind of pick it up and you just see it and there's nothing really magical about it it's just this interconnectedness mm-hmm. uh to your knowledge is there any brain research that uh shows where in the brain uh these th- different parts of the trip are affecting different parts of the brain that sort of thing so if you feel as though you're melting at some point can you pick that up in the brain, you know, what's being triggered? Yeah, you know, there, there was, part of the problem was there was so little research done on LSD for 40 years that there really hasn't been, a, there's been so many advances in understanding of the brain and brain chemistry and, and all that, and neuroscience, but there really hasn't been a lot of research with psychedelics until recently. So, I mean, I was at this psychedelic drug conference, and I was asking people that. I was, I was basically asking, you know, how much more do we know about these drugs how much better do we understand them than we did in 1960? And the answer was not that much <laughs> more. I mean, in some senses they do. They 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 have underst- they do understand the the brain chemistry, and they're not really not you know an expert on this. And I'm not a scientist, so I'm, I'm I should probably shouldn't even answer your question because I don't really know. But but there's a lot of research going on right now, and they're starting to understand it better and in what parts of the brain mm-hmm. these things happen and and why you experience certain kinds of of things visually. Like there's particular kinds of things you experience visually. Like, uh, you know, there's the single trails where you kind of, it's almost like a strobe light kind of effect, you know, things moving. And there's like a, there's sort of a, you know, a scientific explanation why that happens on LSD. Little things like, they're starting to understand that a little better. Did you find, uh, when you did LSD, like, you know, as Jeff, the one thing that Jeff and I had in common with, with our experience on mushrooms uh, was that it seemed to unfold in stages, and it seemed to get progressively more uh, deeply hallucinogenic as the night went on. Uh, is it the same thing with LSD? Yeah, it's 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 different. Uh, is there downtime I mean, on it's the trip? Different. I mean, it can. It's depending on it's depending on the dose. You know, I mean, it, LSD can be you know more more powerful than mushrooms depending on the dose. I think, but um, it doesn't give you downtime. Do you have downtime where you think you're off it, and then suddenly, whoop, it resurges? You know, I've got, if it's a watch that I've taken, I got to kind of sit back and think about it. <laughs> but you know, no, it, you, it would tend to take like an hour or two before you'd come on, and then you'd have like you sort of have a peak experience, maybe three, four hours into it for a few hours, and then you'd kind of gradually come down. But, you know, you had to set aside a good 12 hours to do it. You know? <laughs> right. <laughs> there's a come down. There's kind of a, you know, there's kind of a, it can be kind of a, you know, a, sort of a, you can feel down. Like, that's, with LSD, also with other drugs like, you know, ecstasy, MDA, those right. drugs that, that are, they really, basically what they do is they just, you start pumping serotonin, right? And and then, uh, but you can have like a 
uh, sort of a down for feeling after that because you've kind of burnt out your <laughs> serotonin uh, receptors or whatever. I guess I really don't know the science. But Hence the term burnout. Yeah. Well, getting back to Richard Alpert, uh, what was it that he found in India that, that was so life-altering that he changed his name and, and became this guru figure? Well, he was uh, different than drugs. I mean, obviously. Yeah. Well, he was. T- he had he, both. He and Larry took a lot. I mean, he had hundreds, hundreds of LSD trips in just the space of a few years. You know, and if people. That's if you. You know, like in, most people need like a a week or a month or something break between these trips because they can be so. You know, mind bending and soul shattering. But uh, they they so and they were basically trying to see well, can we get enlightened with drugs and. And Albert, uh, the man who would be Ram Dass, basically decided, no, you can't really. You know, you, 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 he was basically looking for a softer, gentler way to approach this territory of understanding the mind and, and mysticism. And, uh, you know, a tried and true ancient path is meditation. And it's not as dramatic, but, um, you know, you get glimpses of these same altered states through meditation or through chanting, or, you know, all kinds of spiritual practices. So he basically went off, uh, you know, in search of that, like like many people did, like, you know, tens of thousands, hundreds of thousands, who knows, people did in the 60s, when, you know, the journey to the East. And uh, he found a, a, a teacher, a teacher named Neem Karoli Baba, who became his guru, and, uh, and he came back, uh, this guru told him to go serve people, to go help people. And so he came back as a you know as a meditation teacher, and also a lot of did a lot of set up these foundations, the Seva Foundation, and did a lot of charitable work, helping helping people, uh, uh, and uh, just became a whole other person, uh, you know. And um, you know, he also never completely stopped doing these drugs, um, but he um, basically became a proponent of, of meditation as a as a better way to you know. Incorporate this into the rest of your life. Well, do am I remembering correctly that that Ram Dass, uh, that, that his teacher is the one who said, "Give me all your acid," and he took it all at once, and it had no effect on him. Yeah, that's that's a story that that, that Albert tells. Some people think he may have just palmed it, uh, what, <laughs> and not what really taken it. You know, not really taken it, like pretended to take oh, it. Oh, that he palmed it. Who, who knows? You know, I I, I really don't know, but. Uh, you know, there's all you know in India. There, these there's all these, these you know these stories about these you know saints and sadhus and these incredible feats that they perform. You know, it's kind of part of the cultural lore. You know, in, in, in India. So, um, uh, but that know. didn't so affect Ram Dass that he stopped taking drugs. He he didn't stop taking drugs, but he he didn't completely stop taking drugs. I mean, he did he did for periods, but you know, I mean, he told me maybe he'd do it like once a year. You know, but basically he he. Stopped promoting them. That's kind of what he did. He stopped promoting them, and 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 really was promoting meditation and, and service. I can't remember if it was on our forum or or something. Somebody said that they don't believe drugs are enlightening because when they did drugs, you know, they don't need their brain to crawl out of their head and scurry across the floor. That that to them is not that visual, which apparently they had, is not enlightening. <laughs> it, I, I think about that, and I think about all of the people who who do promote this uh, hallucinogen as enlightening. Um, and I just wonder: do you, do you think that there is a difference between an enlightening experience 
and a um, even a powerful positive drug trip that uh, unless you've had the authentic spiritual experience, you can't know that the drug trip isn't it. Well, you know, this is something that that uh, Houston Smith, the you know, the philosophy professor, was really interested in whether these are authentic religious experiences that people have, and there's a whole chapter in my book on this. And what, what Houston determined, and what I actually and I agree with this, is that, yes, you can have, I mean, this basically the same experience in terms of the, you know, uh, mental, psychological, spiritual state or experience on psychedelic drugs as you might have through uh, chanting or meditation or some other spiritual discipline. The brain... The, you know, it's like it's a way of altering brain chemistry, and you, there's lots of ways to do it. Drugs are just one way. Um, there, you know, since an easier way, there it's also a more dangerous way. Um, but what's important to me is not so much the experience; it's what do you do with the experience, right? I mean, how does the experience change the way you live your life? Does it make you a better person? Does it make you more aware, more conscious, more compassionate? That, to me, is like a proof of whether it's an authentic, quote-unquote, religious experience. It's not so much the experience, it's what the long-term effect of it is on your life. And that's why, you know, I think, yes, you can, you can do that with, with psychedelic drugs, and you can also do it with meditation. And you can take psychedelic drugs and become, you know, more of a jerk than you were before. You know, it's not like, <laughs> it's not like a magic pill, you know. It's, <laughs> it, it, it's, it's how you incorporate it into your life. And, how, and, and at a certain point, you say, you, you have to stop taking drugs and start living your life. And, and then, you know, and t- take what you can from the experience. That, that's my take on it. Well, in terms of um, becoming a jerk on it, <laughs> uh, did, did these people, I mean, you know, Ken oh, Wilber... Well, Larry, Larry became a jerk on it. I mean, Larry was a megalomaniac. I mean, well, that, uh, yeah, that was what I was going to ask. I mean, you know, you yeah, got I mean, the, yeah, neuritis, it, it, narcissism, all that sort of stuff. Yeah, right, exactly. I mean, you know, uh, so that, that there's an example. You know, he also, you know, was a brilliant guy and, and had a lot of enlightening thoughts and things to say, and you know, but, um, and had all these, you know, theories, which, you know, I'm sure people in your show probably know more about than I do. Later on, you know, you got into all kinds of things. But, yeah, I mean, it's like, it's, 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 like I say, it's, how, it's what you do with the experience. I mean, some people, so some people, I um, mean, psychedelic drugs can sort of, you can have ego dissolution. Like, you sort of can, uh, you don't suddenly feel like you're the center of the universe, right? That you're, you're, you're connected to everything else around you, which can be, you know, uh, an enlightening experience, or, or it could be a scary experience. Or, but if you're already already kind of a megalomaniac, the opposite could happen with you. You know, so I, I, I think it's 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 what you bring to the table when you take these drugs, which is you know a, a, a large part of it, and what your intention is. Well, would you say that they all went through uh, sort of a similar dark night of the soul? You know, in terms of suddenly being thrust into fame, and you know. Uh, yeah, no, I the definitely. Guru syndrome, I mean, I, all that sort of stuff. Yeah, no, I, 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 I write. They all had their form of either like a bad trip or uh, you know a scary experience. Houston certainly did, and and while while uh, talked about, talked about that in the book, um, Leary didn't talk about that as much. But I think no, he had some. He had some. Yeah, I mean, if you take enough of this stuff, you're gonna <laughs> you're gonna have a bad experience. I mean, it's just it's it's, it's too powerful to for that not to happen. Uh, what do you make of the fact that that um, that these experiences? I, I mean, the deeper ones. Sort of, the more you take, it almost feels like the more coherent something is, and the more you know, realer than real and lucid something feels. Um, I guess I'm just getting back to the old: Are we tuning into something real, or is this all in the brain? 
Because you you'd said, I guess you'd said originally that you think it's all in the brain, but then sort of toward the end of the conversation here, you, well, no, you said it's, it's, it is it's, tapping it's, into something real. What? No, I think it's all in the brain and that you're changing your brain so that you can appreciate or see something that, that in a sense, is there. I mean, a lot of hallucinations are not, you know, it's not like monsters jumping out. You can have those kind of hallucinations, but a lot of it, it's, it's subtler. It's subtler patterns and connections, which, you know, perhaps are there on a molecular level or, you know, it's, it's, so I think you are seeing. I mean, do you think we live in a larger ecology than, than our senses can normally pick up and this thing taps into that? Definitely. If definitely. we if we turned on a light, we'd be like just frightened by the jungle we're actually in. We're surrounded by snakes. <laughs> yeah, I mean, all of the above. All of the above you know. That's all the time we've got for now. <laughs> Don Latin, thank you very much for coming on the show. You're welcome. Uh, the book is The Harvard Psychedelic Club. The website is donlatin.com. That's D-O-N-L-A-T-T-I-N.com. Thank you for giving us uh, your time and, and, and talking about the book. And, uh, you know, come back if, uh, if if you have more experiences that you want to share with us. <laughs> okay. For the next book, come back, yes. <laughs> I, will, I will. I will. It'll be a few years, but I'll, 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 I'll find you. All right. Excellent. Okay. Thank Thanks, you. Don. Take All care. Right. Bye-bye. Hello, this is Raymond Moody, and you are listening to Paratopia. Thank you. Perfect. So the Jeff. So the Jer. Lovely in springtime, are you? Jesus. What's right. that about? What? It's, what? Did you drop? Did you lick page one hundred and eight during this for the, the subscribers the during the show? <laughs> we we promised the subscribers bonus content. Oh, there, is that it? <laughs> there it is. Thank you. Uh, <laughs> so that was interesting. Um, all the sociological shenanigans of the fifties into the sixties. Yeah, and then he was kind enough to give us some of his own um, personal experiences with the drugs. Yeah. Uh, so that was that was good. I bet he doesn't do a lot of interviews where he's asked about his own trips. <laughs> yeah, I mean, I mean, to me, that was one of the best parts of the book. I really enjoyed reading that, and and the notion of how long that it took him to <laughs> extricate himself from, you know, the ether after uh, after that. You know, I mean, what two three months? It's like Jesus Christ. How do you? I mean, I'm certain it wasn't, you know, as uh, as impactful as being dosed all the time, but certainly, you know, he says it was hard to function. Uh, you know, I, I I can't imagine, and I I can't imagine how fearful he must have been to say, "Is this ever going to stop? <laughs> have I ruined myself?" You know, I mean, yeah. Uh, well, I had, you know, when we did the mushroom thing. I don't know if you remember this, but. I think I did it on a Wednesday, right, or a Thursday. I'm not. I don't remember if it was Wednesday or Thursday, but I know that that Friday, um, yeah, it must have been a Wednesday night into Thursday, right? And then right. Friday, I was um, uh, in Cape Cod with my mom and sister, and um, I had I, I don't know what you, a flashback. I don't know what you would call it, but I, I had a trip um, where I was looking out the windows uh, to where the ocean should be. And there was this forest, and there were you know these UFOs and, and all the and, and I mean this looked like like I was like holy shit I'm going to be abducted by aliens and then I remembered 
as I'm staring at this, I remembered, wait a minute, no, 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 no. There, there should be, you know, yes, a picture window there, uh, or sliding glass doors, I should say. Um, but there should be an ocean. There shouldn't be woods. <laughs> right. Uh, and I was hearing like sirens and cops going from house to house, like behind me uh, as this is going on. And I just realized, oh, wait a minute. I'm hallucinating. Right. <laughs> so that's pretty, that's kind of, it's kind of scary, I guess. Or I, I don't know. I wonder if there are people who don't have that moment of, oh, I get it. I'm hallucinating. I guess that would be even more, uh, frightening. But certainly didn't bring on a panic attack. It sounds like what he had, and sort of his, you know, flashback trips was a panic attack associated with it. Yeah, yeah. Well, I mean, I think um, I think people who do a lot of psychedelics would agree with us, particularly the mushroom, that you don't quite feel right the next day. Um, well, you haven't never, slept as part of the problem. Well, I mean, yeah, that's a part of it. But uh, I remember being unbelievably thirsty. I remember feeling lethargic and not, you know, like when you stay up for a really long time and you get that disconnected feeling where you just kind of exist. Yes. You know, I, I kind of had that uh, for most of the day. And uh, and that wasn't exactly pleasant. But, yeah, I mean, I, you know, we, we've heard about the acid. I mean, Sid, Sid Barrett uh, from Pink Floyd, I mean, he he went on the trip and never came back. And and there's there's plenty of other ones out there uh, who, who didn't come back. So, I mean, the notion that it is dangerous to When you a say they, point, they well, didn't come back, does that mean that they're sitting in a vegetative state? Or does that mean that every now and then they suddenly find themselves immersed in a hallucination? No, I would say that. Uh, well, I, that, well, I, number one, I don't know, but uh, what I know about Sid Barrett is that you know he basically tripped on. I mean, he tripped hard for a long time, and um, he just lost his mind. And, and I think, well, I think in his case, I mean, this is just my own take on it. I think that there may have been, might have been uh, uh, the fear of success type of thing going on there. There's underlying things there, I'm sure, but uh, I mean, he ended up, you know going back home to live with his mom and had to be taken care of. And, um, that might happen to me without the drugs. Well, (laughs) yeah, but yet he could still come to the recording studio and, and, and did for a while, I think after they replaced him in the band. So it was like, it wasn't like he was non-functional. It was just, he was not there, you know, and, and clearly the guys, the rest of the guys from Pink Floyd, you know, lamented this for years. Uh, and, and even up until, you know, their their most recent album where they're kind of there's effigies in lament of of Sid. So yeah, I mean it, it's really it is really sad that it can go that way. But um, and that was that was basically one of my greatest fears with it was you know when is this going to stop? I mean it's not like one of those things where you can just turn it off. Um, and I do remember a friend of mine uh, way back probably probably 1988-89, you know. Fourth of July, and he drops acid before the fireworks, and I'm like, "What are you doing?" And he's like, "Yeah, this is going to be a good fireworks display." <laughs> and I remember driving him home, and we're in my truck, and we're going down the road, and he's like, "Okay, like I'm ready for this to stop now." And I said, "What are you talking about? You just, you know, it was probably three hours ago. You got a while." And he's like, he looks over at me with this horrified look on his face. He goes, "What do you mean a while? What does that mean?" And I said, "Well, it's what eleven hours." <laughs> He was mortified. He's like, I didn't know that. So it's not the kind of thing where you just flip a switch or, you know, drink a cup of coffee and, oh, you're all straightened up. It's not liquor. Uh, <laughs> no, it's it's so. definitely not liquor. <laughs> no. 
Well, here's where I get um, sort of I'm not sure what to make of what exactly this is about it. Um, now, if it's if it's something that's really in our environment, I mean, there were differences, like I said uh, on, on the episode where we actually did the shrooms or shortly thereafter, there was a difference between what I was and what my environment was walking around as opposed to uh, sitting in a meditative state um, with my eyes open as opposed to sitting or lying down with my eyes closed. Um, and, it, you know, at some point something comes through my ceiling, you know, some sort of grasshopper organic looking spaceship. This is eyes open, right? Yeah. Mm-hmm. Um, I mean, that didn't happen. <laughs> so, I mean, in order for that to have happened, we would have to say that, that there, there are creatures that can perceive or an intelligence disguised as creatures that can perceive that you're now open to seeing them. And then they are attracted to you like moths to a flame. That seems less likely than there's a hallucination going on. <laughs> that just is a hallucination. Right. I mean, what, what, well, what do you make of stuff like that? Because it's not, it's, it's not uniform. In other words, you know, there's no uniform. Um, there's no repeatability as we all know, but there's no sort of, there's no even uniform depth of what you're experiencing with this. Hmm. Well, I mean, I would argue with the repeatability a little bit. I mean, there is definitely, there's definitely documented similarities in people who don't know each other seeing, um, insanely similar things. Well, I mean, there's it's no repeatability the as in I, if I took the same amount of shrooms, I'm not going to have the exact same experience and lay there on your back to see the same thing. Yeah. Um, well, it is interesting though, that how much that that looks like, uh, what you talk about when you speak of dreams and when you realize you're dreaming, you know, the, the characters turn on you, that sort of thing, where you were talking about, you know, are, the, are these things, you know, floating around the ether? And when they notice us, notice them, that's when they, that's when they engage at you. You know, I don't know. Um, I, I sure hate to think we're surrounded by snakes, but that's, that certainly was, was what I saw. I mean, the one thing uh, he said about his trip, uh, Don Latin, you know, was that he now knew what it was like to be insane. And that's exactly I what I said to you. Yeah, that's exactly what I said to you on the phone. You know, because uh, I absolutely at some point had a moment of cracking, of psychotic break. Yes. Like I know I had a psychotic break because my face was moving in four directions. I was clawing at it, and I was laughing like that scene out of you know Evil Dead Two where all the furniture goes nuts, <laughs> and he's going ah, right. You know, and it's the uh, it, it's the fish eye lens, uh, you know, close up of his face. Right. I mean, that was what was happening to me. <laughs> I'm just getting the visual. I can't believe my neighbors didn't call the cops, you know. I couldn't <laughs> stop laughing. Yeah. And I, and I knew yeah. it. And somewhere in the back of my head was my little tiny voice going, oh, well, this this ain't good. We're dying. Yeah. We're, yeah. We're, we're, yeah. Cracking, I, we're not coming back from this. That's exactly what I said when I was uh, I was uh, on the floor and uh, uh, and I was trying to get my head together. And this is after I just opened my eyes and come out of somewhere else that I thought I was. And clearly I wasn't, I was sitting cross-legged on the floor. And so I thought, I don't know, maybe if I put my arms above my head and kind of stretch out along the floor at a kneeling position, maybe that'll help. I don't know why I thought that I just did. Um, and when I did, I went, and you tend to do this a lot, you know, there tends to be a lot of that. And, uh, and when I breathed on the floor, a dust bunny rolled across the floor, 
And this was like the best joke I'd ever seen anywhere. I started laughing uh, till it hurt, until it was actually painful. And, uh, And just like you were saying, something in the back of my head is going, you've got to stop, you've got to get a hold of yourself. And inside, I wasn't laughing, but the outside wouldn't stop. That freaked me out. And, uh, and because I thought, well, what if I, what if I never stop laughing? This will kill me. This hurts already. I mean, it really does give you uh, a, a real sympathy and compassion for mentally ill people if that's, yes. in fact, what they're trapped in. Because yeah. you tend to think of mentally ill people as just crazy. But if, in fact, there's this disconnect between mind and body and there's some little piece of them in the back that's going, you're crazy. <laughs> Wake up from yeah. this for their entire lives. Yeah. I mean, that's just horrifying to think about. But what a hell that would be. Well, there's, there's, I don't think there's any greater hell than, than the one that you could have in your mind. Uh, you know, I mean, um, you know, I saw what my granddad went through with Parkinson's and, and dementia and all that kind of stuff. And, um, you know, the gentleman across the street from us, that was an elderly couple as I was growing up that, uh, and, 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 and his name was Bill and Mr. Bill was completely functional, uh, guy i mean had a beautiful galaxy white galaxy car it was, it was awesome and uh, and and completely normal in every other way but if he saw a strange car across the street um uh, he would call mom and dad to see who it was because he thought people were trying to kill him um and i remember my mom saying you know there's probably no greater horror um you know it would probably be better if there was somebody trying to kill him because you could get away from them uh, you can't get away from what's inside your own head, um, and then that's that's true. Uh, but I, you know, like I told you on the phone the day after I did that, and you were like, "You did it," and I was like, "Yes." And you said, "How was it?" And I said, "I now know what it feels like to be insane," um, because I said it's like an induced psychosis. And um, uh, but that's not to say that you know there wasn't parts of it that I was just um, slack jawed at. I mean, certainly there's parts of it like that, but I, like I said, I have a problem with control and, and you, you really, you, you can't, the one thing I did learn about it is you better not try to fight it because you can't win that. <laughs> there's mm-hmm. no winning, there's no winning that, that argument. Well, uh, when, when I uh, was in the throes of it, I swore if I ever get out of this, I'll never do it again. And then of <laughs> yeah. course I took one cap just to see what the difference was, you know, many, many mm-hmm. months later. And I've still got the, you know, small handful left. So I'm thinking about taking that soon just to get it out of the way. I don't know. It's been in the back of my mind to try to do it during the day instead of at night just mm. to see what the difference is. Go to Central Park. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. I'm not going anywhere in this in this weather. Well, no, of course not. Um, uh, but uh, it's interesting because I'm, I'm reading this book uh, about the Kalahari Bushmen Mm-hmm. And they talk about basically they're antithetical to all of the Eastern sit still and meditate and all that. They say, no, 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 go crazy, make jokes, go wild, ecstatic states. You know, they're, they're all about yeah. ecstatic states and, and all of that. And nothing is serious. And when they tell um, stories, uh, the stories are actually gross, like they're little morality plays. So if, if you're sitting around the campfire, it'll be a sexually disgusting story or end up in, you know, rape or murder or something. But the point is, uh, that it jostles you. It's almost like a Monty Python skit where it's all really serious. And then suddenly there's this twist ending. 
And it's supposed to, you know, and then you laugh and it jostles you out of your sense of normalcy and sense of self, right? Uh And it's, as I'm reading this, you know, I'm thinking about being that clown character and going through the motions of saying, this is serious and sitting down and watching the TV and going, "Mm mm-hmm, yep, mm mm-hmm. And narrating everything I'm doing now, I'm going to go to the window. Well, I think I should go back to bed. You know, all that sort of stuff. <laughs> right. Yeah. It sounds exactly the same to me. It sounds like, you know, making fun of uh, what we tend to think of as solid reality mm-hmm. um, and, and our solid sense of self. And then that gets me to thinking, because every now and then, you know, you must get this too, where you just think to yourself, why me? Why does this stuff happen to me out of anyone? And people ask you that, right? Yeah. Uh, as far as the spiritual or the alien abduction stuff or whatever. And I got to thinking, you know, I'm not that far off from a Kalahari Bushman clown <laughs> in mm. real life. You know what I mean? Like I've always been, I've always had a fancy for the deep stuff, right? And the spiritual stuff uh, right. to find out, you know, what's true and what's what's not. But I've also always been uh, this asshole, you know? <laughs> <laughs> right. Well, we all knew that. Yeah, like, like the you know, I like to make jokes, and I like to make jokes at the expense of people, and I like to do tricksterish stuff, right. and I put all of this together, and I go, oh, that's exactly what the Bushmen would raise as a person who would be primed for having a spiritually ecstatic experience. Hmm. So I find that interesting. <laughs> what? That you're an asshole? Yeah. <laughs> Anyway, uh, well, no, just that, just that, like, you know, we have this image in our heads of what, um, what it takes to lead a spiritually mature life. Right. And it's all this, like, be quiet, sit still, empty the mind, you know, discipline yourself, all of that stuff. Mm -hmm. And, you know, you've seen these, these new agey gurus and, and meditators and, you know, yoga instructors, and they, they all have a same sense of demeanor about them. You know, there's the same expected demeanor, which is of like maturity and discipline and reserved nature. Mm-hmm. Um, but here are the Kalahari telling you, no, <laughs> actually, we represent original spirituality since humanity came from us. And guess what, folks? You're supposed to go nuts. You're supposed to, you know, embrace this uh, at the laughter level. And then when you do drugs, it's the same thing. It's it's taking off that mask, and uh, at least for me, it was also making fun of it. And I didn't even realize I still had a mask to make fun of until that happened to me. Huh. Why do you think, and this came up in the interview, why do you think that uh, our species likes to be intoxicated? Because it feels good. I mean, orgasm feels good. Drugs feel good. Everything. I mean, you're, you're, you know, when you're talking about more real than real or super sensitivity, I mean, for, I don't know, I don't know, you know, we can't answer what is it about feeling good that feels good, (laughs) but it does. And so we like to do it. (laughs) Hmm. Don't you think? think I I don't, I don't, I don't know. I, and see, this is the part that I had to get pass with the mushroom thing and you know it's like i was never one of those people who like to um you know go to a party and get wasted uh drinking beer or jack daniels or whatever and you know i was always the guy in the band who you know packed up his gear after the gig and left you know i wasn't hanging around to get high and and all of that and i don't know i just i was never one to say 
yeah, I like getting fucked up and hanging out with my friends and all that kind of stuff. I just that that like there were better things to do than that. But I see that there is an inordinate amount of truth to the notion that our species likes to intoxicate itself and and likes to uh, lose control of its faculties uh, at somewhat regular intervals for some people. And I just wonder what what that is. I mean, well, yeah, you know, you know what? I take the pleasurable it back. aspects. I mean, there are pleasurable aspects to it. But there's no, a loss no, no. Of- I'll take it back. I think you can define what feels good about feeling good because I think you just said it. What feels good about feeling good? What it actually means? The definition of feeling good is feeling and not being yourself. Because when you laugh really hard, you sort of lose your sense of self for a second. You certainly lose your dignity and your self-respect and all that. I mean, it all goes out the window. You're laughing. Uh, when you orgasm, you know, they call it the little death. Uh, when you take these drugs, when you drink alcohol, when you, you know, smoke marijuana, it's all losing your sense of self and that feels good. It's taking the mask off. It's taking the mask off, and it's also in the process. Uh, at least, the, I think the deeper you go with these things, uh, you're you're sort of immersing back into the one ocean or whatever. You're, you know, as you said, yeah. your skin's, you know, peeling away or or whatever, melting right. away. Mm-hmm. I think your sense of of uh, your own autonomous entity, uh, which is bullshit, which is the thing that we fight to defend every day from the moment we're born. You know, I mean, when that slips away, it's scary and yet, you know, awe-inspiring at the same time. Yeah. Yeah. And yeah. I think if you well, have I mean, it in little doses and in, in not like the big enchilada, which is the scary thing uh, or can be, then that can actually feel just plain old-fashioned good. Right. Yeah. Sure. Sure. Yeah. It's a curious thing. I mean, this this is something that, that Ter- Terrence used to talk about a lot at one point. In his career, you know, he talked about the mushroom, you know, coming from a spore and a spore's, um, you know, shell is so dense molecularly that it, it, you know, approaches a metal state. And so this thing could conceivably come through space. And, you know, is this some sort of, I don't know, like an alien probe that self-replicates itself as space gets bigger, as it takes off from wherever it is coming from? It self-replicates every so often. It's... uh when it decomposes, it doesn't decom. It doesn't hurt anything, you know. Its its root structure is is uh, very fragile and, and cobwebby, and you know. And so, you know, he said, you know, is this the kind of thing where it's like an alien calling card, where you know, if you eat this, um, you're, you're actually talking to, in some way, the alien hive mind or what have you. So is that you know is it is it essentially a you know a really hot technology as opposed to this natural thing? Um, I don't know if he always stuck to that going forward in his career or not. I mean, I think at one time he's I heard him say you know I entertained that this could be an extraterrestrial artifact at one time or another. Well, I, I don't know. I got a question for you about McKenna. Uh, so yeah. now Don Latin and uh, the host of Psychedelic Salon both say that McKenna liked to tell uh, tall tales. And I think Dennis McKenna, I don't know if we directly asked him or not how much of Terrence's experiences were real, mm-hmm. but he sort of alluded to that. Um, well, they were, but he put his own spin on them kind of thing. How um, much, I mean, y- you and I talk about his stuff as sort of mind blowing reality. Uh, mm-hmm. What What do you think? Is it mind blowing reality or is a lot of it fiction? I mean, why, why do some people just sort of laugh off Terrence as, uh, a guy who liked to tell stories. 
to hear him talk about his UFO sighting to a psychedelic crowd who came to hear him talk about that, it will be a much more abbreviated version. If he goes to a UFO conference to talk about that, then it will expand and he will expand on it. Uh, not in the sense of adding to the story or altering it, but rather going a lot deeper. To not it. the Cliff Notes version. Right. It's not the abbreviated, uh, this is what I saw, here's how it happened, the end. It will be, you know, what is the meaning that you can ascribe to this? You know, and his own UFO sighting, the, the meaning was ascribed to. Um, uh, he, always, he always used to say, I don't think about it what a lot of people think about it. And, uh, you know, and anybody who knows this show, we've described his experience before. Uh, you know, it was essentially to him saying, that ain't it. It's more than this. Uh, you know, you're, you're seeing this, but what are you really seeing? Uh, what, you know, he saw a disc that, that was the Adamski disc. Uh, he knew that was horseshit. <laughs> and so... What do you make of that? He said, you know, something that casts doubt upon itself and then elaborates on that over, you know, over time. I think he could get a little far out when he wanted to, depending on the crowd and depending on, you know, but I don't, I don't think that, uh, I don't, I've heard enough people talk about the DMT experience now to where I think it's a bit more chaotic than what he describes it being. And I've heard him say that the DMT experience he had done more than anyone he knew that he became, he somewhat got a a little bit more of a, he got his sea legs a little bit better and was able to understand a little bit more about it. And then he was able to describe these beings that he met in that state, in that place. I mean, early on, I heard him talk about it in the sense that he felt in the big round lit room with these little DMT tykes, as he called them, um, he said there was always the notion of he felt like he was in a child's toy box and these were toys of some sort and something was watching him react to them. Uh, and later on, he added that there was the unbelievable sensation that he was deep underground in this place, that this was underground. And so that lends more to, you know, hobbits and, 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 uh, and dwarves, fairies, that sort of thing. Um, you know me, I don't believe anybody uh, straight off the bat, but uh, I think that what it comes down to is what he takes away from it um, and then how he articulates it. I think a lot of people get lost in his articulation because he, you know, he's a big $3 word user. And so it, it was the way he spoke. I think that's why a lot of people kind of, you know, refer to him as kind of like a, a trickster type guy. Um, but I don't necessarily think that he was making shit up. I think it just depended on the crowd as to how deep he felt he could convey the utter bizarreness of some of these experiences. I think that's more along the lines of what it had to do with. Hmm. Uh, you know, on a completely different topic, um, hmm. I think uh, I would be scared to do any of this type of stuff in nature because I would be afraid that squirrels would come after me or start talking to me or I'd follow them to a railroad track or, you know, something, <laughs> something awful would happen out there. Whereas in a self-contained room set of rooms, nothing is yeah. going to really go wrong. Yeah. Well, I know I felt a lot safer inside. 
And, you know, at one point I got up and I said, I should go outside. And I put my hand on the doorknob and then, I don't know, something in the back of my head said, oh, you don't want to do that. It's horrifying out there. <laughs> <laughs> and I was so funny. It's horrifying out there. I, I just, I took my hand, like I heard the wind blow outside. Like I heard that. And then I like so gently took my hand off. It was like I was putting a pin back in a grenade. I was pulling my hand off of the doorknob like, okay, <laughs> I'm just going to back away with my hands up, you know. Um, I think judging ju- by just what the visuals were with closed eyes and, and somewhat to, to a degree with open eyes, I think in a very simple environment, I'm sure – that is a, a lot easier to deal with than going outside where it's all the stimulus of air and the sounds of water and, you know, maybe the dog running around outside. Oh my God, what, what, what would I have seen if I'd have seen a dog? Uh, I, you know, I don't know the, the wind blowing through the trees. I mean, what, what your dog that, would have been longer. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. I, I don't know. I mean, uh, I think I did a wise thing by not going outside. I, I think that would have been a little frightening, especially since it was dark. Mm. But, uh, you know, I, I don't regret it, but I certainly, I don't know that I'd ever do that again. Right. Um, I, I didn't like, I say that I didn't have this big separation of me and whatever, but I think that that's what it was when, you know, you, 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 you become so engrossed in, the vision when your eyes are shut, that that becomes where you are. Like I'm right now sitting at the computer talking to you on a microphone. What if in a, a split second, my foot felt funny. And when I went to grab for it, I actually opened my eyes and I was somewhere else. That's like what it's like, or that's what it was like for me. I, I couldn't tell the difference when I was in that, that place in my head. So I guess that is what it, what he means by the separation of the, you know, you lose touch with, not only your surroundings, but yourself, your, your, you know, your body. And, um, that's, that was really disconcerting to me because it, it almost had the feeling like if I, if I had not stopped it when I did, could I have actually gotten out of there? That was kind of how it felt. Um, like I could lose myself there, which was scary. I'll give you something that I've noticed. And, uh, and, and here's a, a big – I mean, I'm really dropping trowel for the kept skeptics to kick me in the balls here, but I'll do it anyway because I think this is interesting. And I'd be curious if the listeners maybe have uh, noticed anything like this. This Saturday night, I think it was, uh, or might have been Friday night, it was late, uh, maybe 1.30, 2 o'clock, something like that, and I'm flipping through uh, – the DVR and I had taped, uh, Oh, another, another episode of the, uh, the life after death thing, which, uh, was a really good one. I watched part of that and then I flipped over to, um, history channel and, uh, uh ghost adventures was on and I, I can only watch that for about five minutes. And then I, I flipped over to another channel where they were running, uh, a rerun of celebrity ghost stories I mean, it was all over the place on TV, you know, not only the DVR, but, you know, there was a couple of channels running this stuff. And so uh, I'm sitting there on the couch and um, off in the dining room going into the kitchen is where it sounded like the sound originated from. I hear a voice, a very deep voice, and 
It's not my kid who has an insanely deep voice, but it's not him. It's even deeper than that. I didn't understand what it was saying, but it was like, what do we want? It was that just syllables that I could hear and make out. And I'll say that when there's been a show on or a program on that is, or even if it's a DVD or a tape or something, I've noticed that there seems to be little flits of things that go on when we're watching shows like that, where you'll hear a noise in the back room. We were watching Ghost Hunters last last week, I think it was, me and my wife, and it sounded like your bedroom door opened and closed. I mean, during the show. Um, Great. <laughs> you know, and I'm like, okay, this... Now, what is that? Why then? Is it because we're watching something on TV that is somewhat suspenseful, I guess, and if something makes a noise around you, you immediately, you're, you're like a dog with the ears? Is that what that is? Or is it because when you're in that groove or you're in that mindset that that is when things can easily move or approach or whatever? Uh, and just last night, I wasn't watching anything paranormal i was watching um, american pickers i love that fucking show and uh and i lay down on the couch i laid my head down and uh i don't know it's probably 10 30 11 o'clock this has happened to me in bed okay this sounds like you to me more than me this sounds like a you story i'm laying on the couch and i got my head on a pillow and i'm stretched out i have my right ear down on the pillow and all of a sudden, I hear this. And I can feel it vibrating. <laughs> so farting is what you attribute to me. Once <laughs> no. again. No. Uh, it sounds like my phone. It sounds like my cell phone is under the pillow and you're calling me and it's on vibrate because I can't get calls at work. So I put it on vibrate. I always forget to turn it back to sound. And so immediately, as soon as it starts, and it's vibrant, I'm like, uh, well, there's Jer. And I, I pick up the pillow, and there's no phone there. There's nothing there. What, what is that? I mean, I don't have an ear infection. There's nothing wrong with my ears. You know, the pillow, my cheek, <laughs> my forehead, my hair. I mean... It vibrated, and it made a noise, a humming noise. I have no idea what that was. That's happened to me up in the bedroom, in bed, that has happened. Uh, and I've tried to put the, uh, the the little digital voice recorder under my pillow. It was happening so frequently for a while. I said, I'm going to get this on some kind of recorder, and I never did. I, it, it never did it when I put the recorder underneath there. So I don't know. All I can say is I've noticed that when there are paranormal shows on, we tend to hear things. And Lisa heard the door open and close. She was there and she looked at me and I looked at her and I just looked back at the TV. <laughs> and then when a commercial came on she says, do you want a Pepsi? I was like, yeah, by the way, did you hear the door open back there? She's like, yeah. Mm-hmm. <laughs> I mean, uh, I don't know. That's, I think that's somewhat significant if it's not a psychological teasing, uh, just by virtue of watching a show like that. But if it's not, what does that mean? That, you're watching a show about this. You're intently watching it, waiting for 
something to happen, um, waiting to see what they catch. And meanwhile, you hear something in your own house that shouldn't be moving or talking or whatever. I, I just find that I find that odd. Um, and it again, you know, goes back to the same old thing. You know, if you're focused upon something or you know you're in that state of just paying attention, there it is. So that could be an interesting experiment all by itself. Well, if you're in that state. Well, I don't know if it's just me or not. You know? Um, I, I don't know. Uh, and I, I mean, to me, that would be an interesting thing to do. It would be, how about you, me, Lisa, and somebody else, uh, maybe the guy we had coffee with, you know, have him up. And we all just sit around and... Uh, and, and and watch these kind of programs on TV and maybe talk about it a little bit and see if y- you get that same kind of experience here. I mean, I would be curious to see if that happens. Um, I don't remember what was on TV when you were here that we were watching when you saw the light on, you know, that floats above the ceiling. I don't even know what was on uh, or what we were watching, but, you know, there was that. Yeah, I think it was that, wasn't that that show where Marilyn Manson was telling his ghost story? That's it, yeah. Yeah, <laughs> it was like a marathon of that show. I think right, right. Celebrity ghost stories. Yeah, I mean it's weird, and and clearly I'm not the only one seeing it. You saw something here. Lisa's seen a lot here. I don't know. I mean, what is the connection with that? That to me would be a damn interesting experiment. Even if it turned out to be that that's just a psychological cue. But your son and, doesn't see anything. That's what's interesting to me, right? I mean, he's not he's not into any of this stuff. He doesn't care about it, and, he, and therefore he doesn't see it. Um, he doesn't talk about it. <laughs> hmm. He feels, um, well, I mean, number one, I think he doesn't want to be bothered with it, number one. Um, he certainly has talked about it with his mother and I. Um, he, he and Lisa have had experiences in the house that I wasn't even here for. In this place or in the condo? Uh, both. And Lisa's had experiences alone, both in the condo and here. Uh, but he doesn't I, I have know. deep discussions about them. He just sort of says, yeah, this happened weird, right? And then goes on about his day. That's pretty much, I would say, how he, how he says it. You know, mm-hmm. I mean, if the, if the conversation is, you know, if we're out camping and there's, you know, people around and we start talking about this type of thing, then he kind of, you know, begins to talk about it a little bit more, um, brings up that he's seen stuff with his mom and, Stuff like that. But I think his solitary, if he has any solitary, um, you know, connections or see something out of the ordinary, I don't think necessarily he would just come down and tell us about it. Um, he did say that he saw a dark figure at the top of the stairs one night going up to bed um, that he thought was my wife because she was already asleep. But he got to the top of the stairs and nobody was there. Yeah, I mean, he sees stuff, but it's it's just not... Uh, he's always been insanely skeptical. I mean, very skeptical. And and I would say a good chunk of what, you know, we see on TV, he'll go, well, that's got to be, you know, a piece of lint or that's got to be dust or, and, you know, he's usually right. Um, I don't know. He's just, he's not quite as vocal about it. You know, I don't know if it's just that he's not that curious about it or whether it's just become commonplace because he grew up with it. I mean, when, when we moved here, uh, I would say for the first six months, there was this was a very nice, peaceful, uh, non-weirdo place. 
Uh, and I'm not saying it's not that now. It, it is, but there's you know there's a little flits here and there of weird shit. Um, like a guy walking into your bedroom. <laughs> yeah, I like well, how you downplay what's actually. Well, happened. it's because it's it's you know flits here and there. A I fully mean, grown I mean, man walks into your bedroom. I'm talking about more shared stuff, you know, like more overtly, you know, in the face of many rather than just me. Like I can't count me, you know, like that doesn't count for me. I know it's I know what's there, but nobody else knows. I mean, nobody else knows, like for sure. I'm talking about stuff other people actually can see. Like there it is. You know, I remember my son telling me I really like living here. Uh, because I'm not seeing crap out of the corner of my eye all the time. <laughs> and I said, what do you mean? He's like, yeah, the condo is crazy. Like you'd always see something in the hallway or something, you know, outside the window or on the deck or in the sunroom, you'd always see something, things moving. And here you don't see any of that. And I'm like, well, that's good. Yeah. <laughs> I told my wife about that. She's like, yeah, see, he sees this stuff too. Uh, you know, so I don't know. I don't know. I would say there's there's getting to be a lot more um, shared stuff lately, you know, with you, with uh, with my wife. Uh, I think Jason has even seen a couple of weird things uh, here at the house before when he stopped over. So, you know, um, but to try to document that, I mean, it's so sporadic. I don't I mean, how many times can you set up a camera? I mean, how much tape do you got? Um well, but you could say that of, of any alleged haunted yeah, place. Yeah, yeah, so, sure. So sure. it's settled. We'll do it at your place. Uh, fine. Mark it on your calendars, folks. <laughs> We're bunking out at Jeff's. That's fine. I would have no problem with that. Um, anything else before we uh, wrap? I don't think so. Okay. I guess um, I'll just announce that as of now, I plan on uh, releasing my next book on March 29th. Uh, of this year for some odd reason i've decided to go against all of my better judgment <laughs> and mm-hmm. uh self-publish and just get it out of the way um or else it will just sit here collecting dust forever and nobody wants that and um anyone i've given it to to read including publishers who have rejected it have all said it's brilliant <laughs> i mean when wow. does that happen they're just like it's brilliant but unfortunately uh it's it's not for us have you tried these people and then they say it's brilliant but Unfortunately, uh, there's a glut of that type of book, and we can't sell that from a famous person, let alone from you. So, uh, with that, um, I gave it to Colin Andrews just to read and for shits and giggles, and he loved it so much he actually wrote a foreword for it. And I don't remember soliciting a foreword for it, Um, but he wrote a foreword for it, then he wanted to give it to his agent, but his agent said that she was way too swamped with people. And then the more I thought about it, um, you know, if I got an agent at this point and I try to sell it to a publisher, you know, who knows if it sells, if it does, then that's still at least minimum another six months uh, before it sees the light of day. Oh, uh, yeah. So, I don't know. To me, it's like I've already moved beyond. You know, when you've, you've done something, you've already moved beyond it and you want to put it out there. Yeah. Um, yeah. I mean, well, so you just want it out. I mean, you want to get it out there. So, yeah. Yeah. Do yourself. So I'm going to do that. So I'm going to do that. So look forward to that, folks. March 29th. And uh, young Jeff Ritzman has kindly, uh, I I shouldn't say offered, I badgered him to do the cover, and he kindly said yes. Yeah, I'll shit it out tomorrow. (laughs) 
<laughs> Jeff Fritzman, ladies and gentlemen. <laughs> I'd like to thank Don Latin for coming on the program tonight. Many thanks, Mr. Don, for your tales of trippy weirdness and four men who changed America forever. Indeed. Don Latin, the book is The Harvard Psychedelic Club. The website is donlatin.com, two T's with Latin. And uh, I'm Jeremy Vaney. You're Jeff Ritzman. That's right. I guess you all know your names. <laughs> I could say them all, but, you know, I, I got to go to bed. Right. So until next week. Uh, Goodbye. <laughs> <laughs>